Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Jose Luis Ricon Fernandez de la Puente. Uh, Jose, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Jose, you are currently uh, at Twitter, uh, but I am interested in talking to you in the capacity of your of your research, uh, of which you uh, research longevity, you research uh, innovation, uh, economics, the the entrepreneurial state, uh, state of science, uh, lots of other topics. Before we get into uh, uh, longevity, how do you yep. sort of find your your interests, or or what would you edit to my sort of bio of you? Um, like how do you, how do you describe the research that, that you do and what sort of, what, what is the thread that ties everything yeah. together? Yeah. I mean, uh, for some people, um, if, for example, if you think of, uh, let's say, uh, Laura Deming, uh, what comes to mind is like longevity. She has been thinking and, uh, and investing in the area for like years now. Um, in, in my case, if you look at my, uh, at my things, I think you did a good, a good job in describing the many things I've done. I also, ha- I also have one, another major thing I did in the past was to do, uh, I wrote this small book on the economic history of the, of the Soviet Union, <laughs> uh, which has nothing to do with, uh, with longevity. Um, so the, the key driver of, of the things I do, it's, it's mostly that, that they find either their ideas that people repeat that they take as granted. They are usually not explicitly stated in, in regular discourse, but they're kind of in the background, uh, undisputed. And so I, I go, I wonder, is this actually correct? Is this thing people assume actually right? And so I go into, into those things. Now, um, historically, some of these things are, are kind of all over the place because I'm, I'm a really curious person. Um, and I'm trying lately to kind of focus on, on concrete areas to try to see if I can go a bit more deeper into that. As for how do I choose in particular at one moment in time what to, what to look at, Sometimes um, um, I know that some people have like a posted list of questions, like Patrick Collison famously has this list of questions. And one of them, for example, was about uh, the so-called Bloom's to Sigma effect. And so, um, so I went into this list and said, okay, let's, let's answer this question. Um, sometimes it's, uh, I just I see people talking about something and it's like, hmm, um, I want to learn more about this. Or sometimes uh, I just find that, that, if it, that the, in a way the, the introductory material or the basics for something is not there. Uh, let's say like, like um, um, I wrote this FAQ for longevity and I was dissatisfied with the existing material that was out there. Like there's so much literature and so many connections you can make. And I didn't find anything that you could just give to someone and say, okay, this one thing is everything you need to know about the topic. You don't need to look, to look anywhere else. You need to talk to, to, to talk to anyone else. The idea is to try to aggregate all knowledge, everything from academia, um, like random Twitter threads between scientists, Reddit comments, Quora, everything to try to give a unified view of, of one given topic. And in a way, my metric of success is that if uh, if people don't reply back, if, uh, if people don't comment on what I've said, it means it's it's good because it means that there is nothing left to be added to what I said. <laughs> no. And when you look, f- so I, I sort of asked you to des- to describe the, the thread that ties together you know, currently and historically, when you look into the future, like if we're looking at your Wikipedia page or something, you know, yeah. what do you, what do, what do you want to have accomplished or contributed to, or, or, or that to, you know, that page to say, what do you want to have done? Yeah. I think that that is going to probably talk about either, uh, either a combination of three things, which are um, improving science, biotechnology. I think that, that more, uh, more like uh, this year compared to previous years, I think that probably biology is an area I should probably actually commit to for the for the future. So that's that science, biology, and probably with some uh, skewed towards more the the uh, computational side, perhaps. 
something like that. So, for example, maybe one, one uh, idea of success, uh, I may say, is, is to, for example, to participate, head or found some organization that is kind of like DARPA for, for aging, uh, some organization that kind of pulls together different streams of research in, in the way uh, that they like to do and actually co coordinates uh, researchers to actually achieve their goals in a more effective way. Yeah. And why, why doesn't that uh, exist today? Or why don't we sort of segue into sort of like government programs that used, you know, like the Manhattan Project and things that used to be super effective. Could that, could something like that happen today or what are the, the biggest bottlenecks there? Or, or why don't you sort of, you know, present some color on that? Yeah. So the, so I, I guess that when, when people think about like innovation in general, there are like four things that always come to mind. Uh, Manhattan Project, you name one, Apollo Program, Park, uh, Bell Labs, and a few other. It's always uh, on DARPA, perhaps. These are the usual examples. Um, and people take this to mean that we have gotten uh, worse at, at doing that. And there may be something to that, but also one, one also has to take into account that back in those days, you also had uh, strong, pre strong, strong external pressures uh, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the US. In this case, the, in the one case, the Second World War, the, the second case, uh, the Cold War. So there was a very strong pressure to actually deliver these, uh, uh, these projects. So currently, uh, there are, for example, uh, if you take, for example, NASA. So NASA is trying is currently working on, on the Constellation program. They're, they're trying to go back to the moon, for example, and eventually to Mars. So, and then you have a SpaceX. Of course, SpaceX is working on their own, not, not a moonshot, but more of a Mars shot. Um, NASA, NASA themselves, they have calculated that it would, have, it would have been more expensive for them to develop what SpaceX is doing uh, than, than NASA itself, which is kind of, kind of an indictment of NASA. And this is they themselves admitting so, so much. But then we have a space that seems to be moving very, very fast. So it, it's, it doesn't seem to be something in like U.S. culture or U.S. society. Uh, it's, it seems to be something uh, either in the motivations or inner workings of, of the U.S. government. Um, if you look at also DARPA, for example, so DARPA ha has also done great work in this task of, of uh, coordinating and bringing together various actors. And if you think of this like, big, like, the, like the golden age of DARPA, it, like the, like the things DARPA is famous for, usually the things that come to mind are kind of like from the 70s, like maybe maybe things that they are doing now, they will be more impressive in, in, a, in a few decades from now. But it seems that there is, there is something going on in, uh, in there. Uh, what that might be, I think, why is the US, the U.S. government at large becoming so dysfunctional? I think I, I don't have like a good big, uh, theory of that. One hypothesis is just like this idea of, of an external pressure uh, from from war in, in that case. Yeah. And so is there any way we can get back to that without having a war? <laughs> yeah. So I was um, um, interestingly, so if you go to the literature on, um, on um, the economics of innovation, the general consensus, although this is uh, kind of evolving and I mean, it seems to be that war is war by itself is not that good for innovation in general. I mean, the, in the aggregate, uh, because at the end of the day, the, the, the Manhattan Project, sure, uh, we got uh, nuclear power. You could argue, you could argue perhaps that that how we go on slower, we would have gotten there safer and without the stigma of nuclear weapons. So there, there is a case to be made against the Manhattan Program. Uh, likewise, for the for the Apollo Program, it's something I like to call the world's greatest and most amazing arts program, in that. The, the, the practical outcomes in terms of like GDP growth, uh, economic growth, were not that big as in. Yeah. And so it may well be that that all, the, all those resources and coordination were not put towards uh, kind of making a innovation great. And so if you look at, at uh, I guess, like the, the, the ultimate metric, although somewhat flawed, if you look at GDP growth or total productivity growth through the Second World War, so the, the Second World War uh, supposed uh, like almost like a phase transition between uh, the, the, the old and the new ecosystem of innovation in the U.S. So the U.S. federal uh, investment in, in, in R&D increased by a factor of five. That was like huge. Previously, they were doing a few small things around. You had like uh, like NASA and, and prior to that, you had NACA, like, a, like an airplane oriented NASA institution. 
and some um, investment in uh, agriculture. But it, it wasn't like the thing we know now with the NIH, the NSF, and all these big institutions. So th they made all these investments, but that didn't show up, interestingly, in the in the statistics for for, for, for innovation. So there is something strange there. And as I said, it, it may sound strange because if anything, I've said that GDP more or less seems uh, kind of going the same, but you could also argue, depending on how you cut the, the metrics, that it is a slowing down, that we are getting less productivity and less innovation, which is a valid take, uh, in which case it's even more puzzling, right? We got like a 5X increase in R&D and yet we are either getting the same, like no one is arguing that we are like progress is accelerating in like in general, uh, at least. The one thing that, the, that may be the case is that it's something I do believe is that uh, Organizations in general, they usually don't uh, survive for a long time in a healthy state. Organizations age, uh, so to speak. Um, so if you look at the, it may well be that I mean, that the NIH or the NSF or, or, or current scientific institutions, when they were made, they were quite uh, lean and efficient. But as they exist uh, for, a, for a while longer, they maybe become more, uh, in, a way, in a way, sclerotic and slower and more bureaucratic. That, there may be something to that. I mean, they, uh, there's this funny, like, funny thing I've heard that uh, goes that, that a bureaucracy meets the needs of an expanding bureaucracy in a way. I think once you have this, 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 this established structure, it will try to perpetuate itself and justify itself, even if it's not meeting its intended aims. So, for example, suppose for the sake of the argument that the Federal Reserve, in, in one case, uh, that's not to go into particular, so suppose they find that actually we will be better off without a Federal Reserve for some reason. Do you think they're going to abolish themselves? That would be extremely unlikely, um, or, or for, for the matter of the NIH said, well, actually, maybe we should cut our funding in half and give this funding to some to else. That doesn't really, from a, from a rational individual point of view, from the agents in the system, it doesn't really make sense. But it could be that that's the, that, that's the way to go. Um, so, for example, I think that um, Patrick Collison suggested, and I think I agree with him uh, on, on Twitter, that, that it may well be that, that, that a way to reinvigorate the NIH is to cut it in small chunks, to make it... Uh, to make it more diverse in, in a way, to make it to, yeah. instead of having uh, the same, um, uh, well, the NIH, to be sure, the NIH has like a, or they have tried to have like a rigorous uh, peer review process. It's not like, like they, they try to make it bad. They have, they, they have, they have made great advances in trying to, in trying to get uh, grant peer reviews going faster, but still, I think there is uh, room for improvement. Which again, so if, I guess one, one paper some people usually cite is this paper from Pierre Azoulay. It's a paper that compares the NIH with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute or the HHMI. So the, the NIH, the way, the way it works, the way, and by the way, so the, if I focus on the NIH, it's because to some extent science funding is synonymous with the NIH. Like in the US, like more than 50% of all science funding is the NIH. And maybe we can talk about why that yeah. is, but, but it's a good proxy. So you also have these smaller philanthropic institutions like the like the uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So what what the NIH does is they like you, you apply for a grant and then you get some money for for the duration of the grant for a year and you have to have both some results that support that your grant actually makes that what you're going to do actually makes sense and then it they're usually more or less it cannot be too wild but not too basic. It has to like be in some like nice sweet spot between. Uh, like moonshot and like boring science. The HHMI, they basically select uh, a few scientists and they fund them for a few years. They say, okay, here's your money, go do whatever. <laughs> and, and you have freedom to, 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 to pursue what you want. On the one hand, you could say, well, then they're going to get la uh, like more lazy or like I said, they are not subject to the discipline in a way 
of having to apply for grants and stuff. But on the other hand, they are free from the same constraint. At the same time, they can think on a more longer term. In, they can, instead of trying to publish the next paper, they can think five years ahead as in, in, in a coherent research program. And so the, the paper I mentioned from, from Asway, he looked at, um, at the performance of scientists funded by both the NIH and the HHMI. And they found that the, the, the HMI scientists, once you control for like practicing skills and publications, those scientists, they tend to publish more impactful uh, research. There's more variance, oh, there's also some less, but you increase the variance, you increase, you get more of the breakthrough kind of stuff. And interestingly, the NIH recently published uh, an, a paper a few years ago where they found the same thing. <laughs> they, they found that so the, the NIH has this program called the NIH Director's Award, which is similar to what the HHMI does, but it is not what the NIH does uh, in general. And they found that scientists funded in this way by the NIH tend to also uh, outperform their peers. So it seems that the idea that so-called funding people, not projects, I think that does seem to work, um, at least uh, in the cases that have been tested. That giving that extra freedom to think in a more comprehensive long-term way, I think that is probably one of the most uh, impactful things one can do to foster more and better science. Yeah, and so say more about how the science funding apparatus works. Why is the NIH 50%? Is there, and in another sort of organizational question, is there a way in which you can design organizations such that they don't become super bureaucratic, that you could predict sort of the problems that, that will happen with them and, and sort of build for that internally? So I guess it's two sort of separate questions of how science funding works, how it should work, and then just organizational design. Yeah, I think the, the for the first for the first question, the way science funding works, I guess in a way, the way, I think if you try to think it from first principles, how would you design a science funding system top down? You may imagine something like, well, like you look at each field, look how promising it is, and then you allocate funding in some way like that, right? Like, well, like some people may argue like, oh, but like, uh, what if like we should fund, let's say archeology span or like Sanskrit studies, because maybe those lines of research would lead to breakthroughs. And well, sometimes it happens like you know, this paper that came from uh, the field of Egyptology, looking at, at like, uh, like all uh, Egyptian, uh, like, involved mice and uh, it was like usually in other areas of biology for sure but i think everyone understands that some fields both historically and also looking forward they tend to deliver more of the kind of thing that most people ultimately taxpayers pay for the research but most people want more of um ultimately you probably want to fund things that leads to let's say um like faster airplanes uh better drugs uh, cures for cancer uh better batteries, faster computers, things like things like that. And sure, there is there might be a role for like generating knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's it's an interesting problem to think about how how do you square that with uh, with the whole apparatus? Because probably the people that are thinking about this problem, about how to fund research, are people maybe that, like in a way that like me perhaps that we share this passion for knowledge for the sake of knowledge. So maybe we may tend to be biased towards funding more of that. So so you in a way, um, you can look at, at, at uh, mathematicians or, or like high energy phys physicists as generating interesting insights into the way, into the structures of mathematics and the universe. But you can also look at them and say, and say gosh, if these people were doing, were working on batteries on, or, or kids for cancer, wouldn't would we be making progress much faster? So, so that's the thing. So that's not the way it works. And the, the, way, the way science funding actually works is that, yes, that, that there is some attempt by different funding entities at doing this. So famously, the, the U.S. and this, um, in contrast to other countries, the U.S. Uh, does not have a unified innovation strategy. Uh, there are different bodies of, of, and different entities that fund their own research and, and do their, their own research. And they, they each have their own criteria. So you have everything from like, like uh, well, 
I guess let, uh, let's go to the NIH. So the, the NIH, uh, if you go back to the, like to the 90s, the NIH was way smaller. And you had like uh, a bunch of people, including uh, Bill Clinton back then, who said like, you know, like in the, in the same way that physics, physics propelled us all the way through the 20th century and biology and life science is going to be the future in the 20th, it's going to be the, the engine of innovation. So we should fund that a lot. How much is, should that a lot be? So in, in the case of the NIH, you had like like uh, like uh, lots of lots of lobbying for more funding. You have both pharma. You also have you also have like uh, associations of, uh, of of patients, cancer survivors, and people affected with cancer. It's it's a very in a way emotive issue. Like promising a war against cancer or like the cure for cancer and illness. That that's a really good sale, and it's difficult to oppose that. So if, if you go to Congress and you request for more money for that, it's easy to get. It's easier to get compared to other things. So if you go, for example, to material science, which is funded to some extent by the Department of Energy and the and the NSF, the National Science Foundation, in that case, you, you can say like, well, if you fund us, maybe we get faster airplanes and you know maybe better batteries and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it sounds nice, but it doesn't sound as vivid as a cancer cure. Uh, and so ultimately, it it comes to a heavy dose of, of lobbying. <laughs> ultimately, you have both both from from the, from the corporation point of view, and so also from different groups that that want the funding that that lobby for that. Um, so that's the the current state of play, and I think that this is probably similar uh, across countries to some or other or other uh, um, extent. Maybe it's more egregious in some sectors, like maybe the uh, the aerospace and defense sector, where you have like really old so-called prime contractors that have been there, like Lockheed Martin or Boeing, have been there forever. And they always get the interesting contracts. I mean, that has been going to change recently. But if you if you have an industry that has more or less been the same forever, and the, ultimately it kind of becomes a mesh with, with the with, with the government officials, and you get these interesting dynamics. Now, I think that the, the difference between the things that are being currently funded is not like it's not extremely it's not super bad. I mean, it's it's not like the like archaeologist lobby has captured all the R and D, and we are only funding research missions to Egypt. Think that we are funding a lot of, of really things that I consider uh, impactful and conducive to economic growth, but I think that more could be done to, to improve that situation. Yeah. So, and you agree with sort of the uh, Patrick Carlson, Michael Nielsen, you know, science is slowing down, or or, 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 or if you have any nuanced difference of opinion, where where so? Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I was in this dinner with uh, with uh, with Patrick Canelo, and I think I was asked this question. My answer was that's the wrong question. That you shouldn't ask that. I mean, if I had to if I had to answer this question, my answer is yes. But I think that the, the that question by itself uh, hides a lot of complexity because uh, if you answer yes, it sounds like, or it seems to presuppose it's a systemic factor that, that affects all of science, like is dragging it down, and then you will jump to try to find this one thing. But actually, I think that it's more. We should actually go on on a case by case, sector by sector basis. So, for example, if you look at if you look at the life sciences, like it, it's it's booming. You have like all these advances day by day. Like you have all of these like every month there is a breakthrough paper, and not only there is an interesting paper, that there are paper that overturns things that we thought were 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 true. This is something we do not see in more settled fields. Uh, if you see, for example, uh, for example, I, I studied mechanical and aerospace engineering back at university. If you look at a textbook of classical mechanics from the 18, from like the 1880s, from like uh, from Rankine, it's the same as we used to think. Like classical mechanics is more or less sorted. It, it's more of a it, it's more of a filling the gaps uh, and designing concrete applications. Um, if you look at physics, for example, if you look at physics, like people worry about physics, like oh, like the like sure we, we found that the Higgs boson uh, was actually a thing. We confirmed that, but that was what, what we expected. Like the, the standard model predicted the Higgs the Higgs boson. So so far. But there maybe there are some anomalies there in physics that we have not been able to explain. But so far, it seems that if you look at the last recent years in physics, recent advancements, both from a from a theoretical merit point of view and also from the point of view of things you can apply, 
you don't really seem to see a lot of that recently. And it, it seems that more like our knowledge is, is extremely good. And actually some people have even claimed, um, and I kind of subscribe to this view, some people like, uh, like uh, um, Sean Carroll, a physicist, that physics for um, all intents and purposes, that is for useful applications, it's more or less complete. We will eventually perhaps get to a theory of everything that kind of unifies general relativity and quantum mechanics. But the, the levels of energy required to achieve, achieve effects or get effects that cannot be explained by current physics or that require this like new physics, it's, they are so high that they are way, way into the future. Um, that, I think that's probably the case. I mean, I wrote this article about, uh, about uh, is physics dead, <laughs> basically, with a very, um, in a way, trying to see if people would come at me to tell me that I'm wrong, because I would really like to be wrong. But I think that it's mostly, like the, the chances that we're going to discover, let's say, uh, let's say things like faster than light travel, teleportation, uh, like going back in time, uh, Star Wars style, uh, anti-gravity spaceships. These things from science fiction, um, are the, how likely is it that these things are actually possible? Not very likely. I mean, there are, maybe we should always leave some small likelihood for these things, but currently it doesn't look like they are. However, if you look at things in biology, uh, uh, and again, the chiefly, you have like people are still dying of, of age, illness, and, and other things. And there is no physical limitation. And there is no law of physics that says that you have to get ill, which means that there is still a lot, of, um, um, a very long uh, uh, like runway for biology. There's still plenty of things to learn, invent, and create in that space. So, um, and so the, the problems from physics are different from the ones that in other fields. So in, in one case, it might be that, um, so um, one may see science like as an, like a, as an endless frontier, as some, uh, something that it kind of like, you can always get more. Maybe it's like the, the David Deutsch uh, optimistic view. I think maybe he's still optimistic in there, <laughs> but there's also the view that science is more like a plot of land and you're like mining the plot of land. You are steadily getting more out of the mine, but it, it's finite eventually. You eventually run out, run out of it. And maybe there's another plot of land, another in a way set of breakthroughs or paradigm and you exploit the paradigm until the next one. But ultimately, the set of all those things, I, I also see, the, see it as bounded. So eventually, you run out of them. And some fields run, run out of steam earlier than others. Uh, and so if a field, it seems like that's the cause, maybe you shouldn't really worry that much about making, like, improving the efficiency of science there in that field. In, but in other fields, if it seems like it's more or less, there are plenty of things to go, like, again, in life sciences, then in that case, you should worry, worry more about exactly what is going on in there. Yeah. And so just to get on the physics thing for a second, Eric Weinstein claims and other people have claimed to sort of like have been working on this theory of everything for, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Do you follow that at all? Are you dubious of that happening? You know, I is mean, there so, a possible breakthrough? Yeah. I mean, so there, there are various proposals for so-called theories of everything, theory of everything in physics. And so, so historically physics, you have like, you had like different, you had like, like the weak electromagnetic force, you had like gravity, uh, strong electromagnetic force. Like, and then they have been steadily unified into, into, into uh, like single theories. So current, but currently we have this like both we have kind of gravity around there. We have like and also we have like these two big families of theories, uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics, that don't play well together. So we don't have to properly propose different theories for this. There is like of course maybe the most famous uh, um, uh, string theory perhaps. Eric Weinstein has this own theory of like called topological. I don't know the name he was called. Um, yes, he has one theory. There is also Garrett Lisi. He's more of a heretic. Physics that is like uh, he's more or less on his own. He's proposed a theory. And apparently, you, there is like this mathematical group called a, a Lie group, like the E8 Lie group, and you can map a lot of current physics onto this object. And it's like, well, it, it's kind of a weird coincidence. So maybe 
this is telling us something that there are particles that we haven't seen yet and all, all other forces and all the interactions that we haven't seen and so on. Okay, um, yes, there are these pro proposals indeed. The problems they tend to have, I think that there's this physicist called uh, Sabine Hosenfelder. She has pointed out one, that physicists sometimes tend to be misled by mathematical beauty. And the second, that many of these theories, at least in the, in, in the, in the medium, maybe in the long term, we can't test them. They require, for example, huge particle accelerators with like, like uh, huge energy scales to actually test. And if uh, actually if testing the theories, you need so much, some, so much energy, actually, uh, actually getting to apply the theories, it may be also quite difficult. And so, yeah, so, so for example, if you take Eric Weinstein's theory of, or, or string theory and you say, okay, if this theory is true, what does it enable? I think, can, can you do like, and the answer I think, and I think it was also Weinstein's, uh, uh, Weinstein's own answer is that, no, or he tries to, in a way, probably deflect the question. Uh, although he, he sees the point of, of the theory for Weinstein, it's, it, it's in part more one to break the intellectual stagnation of physics. Because, uh, that's an achievement on, on its own. It's to say, okay, you have been going around all these theories and, and here is like a coherent, beautiful mathematical theory where everything fits and everything makes sense. And that's, that's breaking what he sees as groupthink and stagnation. But if you ask him, okay, can we, can we have a, a Star Trek now? I think the answer is no. Like the theory doesn't predict things that we can really use in, in that way. Now, th there are some theories. There's this guy called uh, Mike Makulov. He was funded by DARPA uh, last year to pursue research in, in this called things he called uh, quantized inertia. That, uh, well, he, he ultimately apparently DARPA didn't like it and he lost funding. But in his case, he says, one, he has a theory that may, that predicts that things like, like, uh, like a Star Trek or Star Wars style, like, uh, like anti-gravity ships are possible. That's one. Second, he proposes that he proposes experiments that can be used to test this in the near term, which I think, and I think that, okay, fine. Uh, maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's uh, more of a crackpot, but I think that if your field is, is stagnating, uh, you may as well give some money to the crackpots. Maybe they are right. And I think that if, if no one else is proposing things that are kind of would lead to breakthroughs and can be tested importantly, then you may as well uh, give these guys some money. Yeah. So is, is sort of some, can you sort of, um, if you could wave a wand and change anything about how, you know, money is uh, in science is, uh, is allocated, uh, what would you change? Um, and then also separately, but somewhat related, over the next few years, potentially, you know, one of your sort of side interests is exploring how, how science, how we, how we can do it better. And so I'm curious what, the, what are the research questions you have or hope to, hope to, hope to solve? Yes, as, as to, I guess, rather than, I think that more than an answer to the question, I have more or less an answer that generates a model that answers the question, I, I think, because I think it's a complicated question. So the, the answer to the question looks like this much money uh, will be allocated to, to these many fields. And I think to do that, you need to solve the problem of predicting how successful these fields are going to be, which is uh, not easy. I think that probably, I mean, some changes I will make, I will probably take funding out of uh, high energy physics and fields that, at least on my view, or also from some higher mathematics. And I will probably put that, put those, uh, that funding towards more, again, biology. I think that biology, um, if, if you go by the heuristic, that the, rate of that the present rate of progress in a discipline is suggestive of, of its potential and impact. I think that definitely you can maybe, if, if, you, if you manage to find a way, if you manage to find a way of measuring rates of progress in different disciplines towards useful applications, you can probably find like a, a, some kind of a weighted average that say, okay, this field is making so much progress. So you get a larger proportion of all the funding. And sure, you still want to find, to, to find these things that don't really seem to go anywhere because maybe they go somewhere. 
but you should, I think, compared to the current status quo, you should, I think we should definitely more be more biased towards these, uh, towards life sciences. Um, this is not just because of the money, um, because uh, uh, as I mentioned, so if you look at how much money uh, physics gets, it, it's it's not like it's it's a, it's a lot, like right. I mean, if you are doing theoretical physics, you are like sitting on an armchair thinking about about the world. It's that the the talent. I mean, ultimately, the the, the reason people choose one career or another or another, it's partly because there are opportunities in those fields. And so, if you put more money in biology, you may get some people that who would have otherwise gone into, let's say, doing maths, into uh, doing maybe they will be doing computational biology, uh, but you will put them in this field. I think that the biggest constraint to innovation, I think, is not so much money. It's probably just having people uh, having ideas. That's probably the single biggest bottleneck for innovation. Uh, I think if, if and actually, if, if, if you go to the economics of, of, of innovation, actually, if you look at all these models that, of economic growth, that the, the usual key driver is usually uh, population growth. It's like having more people having more ideas, plus then some adjustments for, like, oh, if you have more knowledge, maybe you get... Uh, knowledge acquisition gets faster because you have already a broader knowledge base, or maybe it gets slower because you have already kind of mined all this knowledge. But that, that's the the key thing you need. Uh, you need to to to, uh, to um, allocate your brain power carefully. And I guess also another policy here, another very impactful policy here is uh, immigration. So you probably want to let uh, people that so suppose there's like a like a genius uh, researcher in uh, Nigeria, and that would be better funded and, and networked if if they go to um, let's say uh, like, uh, like uh, UCLA or whatever, uh, but because of uh, visa issues, it's not going to be easy for them. And that's, and the whole world will be missing out on their talent. So you, you, want, uh, you, you want to easily allow high-skilled uh, people to, to do this. Now for, for, for professors and researchers to, to some extent, this is a reality, this is more of a reality than for people. So the, the US visa system is kind of draconian and contrived, but it is somewhat easier for researchers. But uh, you still want to make it super easy. For example, in the European Union, if, if, if you're born in Spain, you can just walk into Germany and get a job there. You don't have to get a visa or sign anything. It's, it, it is as if you go to a city in your, in your same country. And that's, I think, a dream, a, a very legitimate dream to, uh, to aspire to. The dream where, where, where if you have a good idea, you can just go and build it or research it wherever you are. Totally. And so talk more about uh, innovation uh, how, how it really works, what, what misconceptions w- we have about it, uh, when, when, uh, when we don't have it, why not, and, and how, how we should be getting more of it. Yeah, I think so for, for innovation, there are, as I said, so the, the, the raw material is people having ideas. Well, not people having ideas, it's people noticing that something is broken or something or not is, is satisfactory, except one step, a step to fixing it. It sounds like, oh, duh, of course, but historically, people were not like that. I think people, not everyone had this mentality. You just accepted things were like they are. Um, and this is a historian, Anton House, who has written this book um, or published his papers about uh, the so-called mentality of innovation and how it might have helped uh, cause the Industrial Revolution in the UK. So that's one uh, big uh, component of that. But okay, but but if you have ideas and you don't have anything else, that's very nice, but doesn't go anywhere. So you also need uh, you also need uh, you also need funding, of course. So historically, most of the innovation we have had, they were either as people are just innovating both in, in private companies, then you have like either kings or, or princes having uh, like paying for, uh, for example, you had like the, uh, the Medici's paying for researchers and they staying and uh, like in-house researchers like uh, Leo. Um, but then as we get uh, as we get closer to now, then you have like a stronger role for government. So there's this idea that, uh, that uh, research in general, um, there's this, this um, public goods problem that research, uh, if you invest in research, you're not going to capture all the benefits from that. Eventually, people will copy you, and people will will be inspired by your research, and they will um, 
do other things. So you're, because you're not going to capture all of that. So for example, there's this guy, John Goodenough. He he was not single-handedly, but he basically invented the modern like batteries that we use. Like, yeah, he's not like a multimillionaire or anything. He, he, um, but it's like he has a huge he had a huge impact, and yet he he didn't get all all, the, all that money. So there's th th this argument that you also need some a public uh, um, investment in there. You need some uh, like extra thing uh, from the government. Now I think that you can make like a weak and a strong version of this argument. The the, the strong version is that some uh, discoveries will not happen if you don't support them from the state. I do not believe this is true. I think that um, usually like big science uh, projects that are very difficult to fund, extremely large projects, extremely expensive are again Manhattan Project, Apollo program, large telescopes. Those are usually not the ones that lead to, to let's say cures for cancer. There are some exceptions of, of big science, like for example the large, uh, sorry, the the, uh, the human genome pro project. Uh, but usually science can be done uh, in uh, on a small project basis. So if you, I guess, like the public funding, what we'll do is to accelerate or decelerate the rate of of, uh, of innovation. In some cases, it, it could even it could decelerate it because of this phenomenon. Like if uh, if you find, for example, again, Second World War. You had all all this money put into like uh, defense R and D. You had all these people researching that stuff. Well, there was there was this paper that measured productivity in other sectors, and productivity fell during the Second World War because these people were not doing research on how to like say get better like cars, batteries, or airplanes. And so it can be that funding sectors that do not more do not directly contribute to economic growth slow down slows down economic growth. So that's one that's funding. Okay, but the, besides that. Uh, it's not just people on their own uh, or even labs uh, doing research. The right way to think about this is, is in uh, systems of innovation. It's in uh, ecosystems of different kinds of entities. So you have you have uh, both uh, like large public institutes like the NIH. You also have private foundations. You have private labs. In the past, you used to have like uh, like so-called gentleman scientists like Darwin or more recently uh, Alfred Loomis in their second work. These are people that on their own. They do research, uh, they publish papers, and they do experiments, and they contribute to, to scientific knowledge. So you have all these entities. You also have entities that help with cooperation. Uh, but some of them are public, like DARPA is the most famous one. So these entities help uh, notice gaps in, in both in knowledge and also in application of, of that knowledge. But they also have, uh, also have public and private partnerships uh, between companies. One, for example, is Sematech. So Sematech is a consortium made by semiconductor manufacturers in the US. Sematech initially was half public, half private funded. Nowadays, I think it's just privately funded. But the idea was to kind of, it's, it's like, you, you have like Intel and you have like other semiconductor manufacturers. And a lot, of, a lot of the research is going to be kind of the same. Why duplicate research? Why not do research together and then share that? Um, so, so companies sometimes will do this on their own. They will, they will create this called research consortia to do, uh, to do this. And again, this can also be facilitated or or made difficult by policy. So, for example, also if, if you go back to the I think it was the six or seventies, because of antitrust regulations, companies were like, "Oh, we're not going to collaborate with, with with our companies because they may think they might raise like antitrust against us." When they actually made clear that association with the purpose of R and D was fine under the antitrust laws, then you saw a huge increase in the number of how, how much companies were collaborating uh, together. Uh, showing that uh, that the, the right kind of policy uh, really uh, really matters. Let's get into uh, sort of how innovation shows up in the uh, in the statistics. So maybe you, you could talk about sort of what GDP does well, what it what it doesn't do well, how we measure I I innovation, and and how you think we can we can improve that. Yeah. So I guess the 
if I ask, if you ask someone like on the street, what is innovation? Uh, what comes to mind intuitively about the concept of innovation is things like new discoveries, maybe new, well, some people make distinction between innovation and invention, but usually more knowledge uh, or even just more like better, better things in general, like more, more discoveries, more useful, more useful applications of knowledge. Okay. Okay, so this, this is what people have in mind for innovation. Okay, so, but when, when economists talk about innovation, what, what they usually measure is something called total factor productivity or TFP. The way this is measured, it kind of sounds very like, uh, it doesn't sound like a, uh, like something very rigorous, but you literally take GDP and you, you say that GDP equals some constant times the, the amount of labor times the amount of capital, like a, like GDP equals a capital times labor times a, productivity and then you measure how how much this this constant changes over time and that's it basically it's like it's like you're aggregating together like all different kinds of labor and all different kinds of capital and then you're measuring this thing that's that's what uh, productivity is i mean it's it's an issue to measure metric uh, it correlates with things you may care about but it, it doesn't sound very intuitive right like, it doesn't sound like uh like it should obviously correlate with what you think like, for example suppose that the rate of scientific uh, discovery or the rate of improvement in science is constant. But suppose that you have like awful housing regulations, then you're going to see a decrease in TFP, even though scientific progress is, is still going perfectly fine. So you have to, to, be, to be careful about what, what that means. So um, again, uh, just to, to finish up with, the, with this, so another ways people have of measuring innovation is looking at, at, pat at things like patents, paper citations, Recently, there's this recent work on trying to use, um, um, I think, more of a machine learning approach, looking at uh, the way like patents and papers and, and the way they, they are cited to see exactly uh, what is being impactful and or even what the news talk about. Try to relate uh, people getting really excited in the news uh, about something to actual to papers. Ultimately, there are all these different ways that people go out doing it. Um, as for so as for GDP, so GDP. Um, ultimately, it matters because you cannot eat innovation. Like ultimately, you have to produce uh, uh, things that will lead that will then lead to welfare, and that is the idea that gets captured in in, in GDP. Um, so GDP, uh, if you look at most things that are in a way good, uh, not all of them, but if you look at things like you know, like uh, like lifespan or like uh, crime or various other things, uh, like um, they usually correlate with uh, you know, also uh, um, how many hours on average uh, people work, uh, things like that. They usually correlate correlate with uh, with GDP. So it seems that GDP um, it's it's a, measure, it's a measure of how much can we produce. And more so if you look at GDP per capita, because some countries may just be very big and that so they will have large GDP. But you probably want to correlate out per capita how much how much wealth you have uh, per person. Um, so I said this is a, this is a good enough metric, and actually Tyler Cowen says that it's probably good enough for most interesting purposes. And yet, um, you may argue, for example, that some things that seem very important do not show up in GDP. So, for example, like this tech company, like people like to complain about tech companies. Tech companies are, are great. Like we we are exploiting them all the time. They give us like free, like Android, a free operating system, Gmail, like all, like all of these things for free. And people have okay, should, we should quantify how much uh, enjoyment you know, people get from these things. When you do that, you get changes to the official GDP statistics, but they're not huge adjustments. They, they, don't, they don't change like the, the, the overall trends. Um, another, another adjustment you can make to GDP uh, is that, is that um, the, the okay, so GDP measures uh, basically how, how many things, how much we are selling and buying from each other in a way. But these things also change over time, like the, the, the um, if, if a television costs, let's say, like $500 today, 
and, and the same same amount 10 years ago it's not the same television now it has more features so you have to account for that and how do you do that well it, it's own basically it's own literature on doing that which again uh, can lead to i think eric weinstein has complained that these adjustments can be used for political ends try to bias or hide the actual trends that are that uh, reflective of growth um you can also look at not at gdp per capita but maybe some people look at gdp uh, per household um, there's this very famous picture that shows like productivity growth more or less going up and, um, and GDP per capita per household more or less going flat after 1970. That happens, I think that one, I think it's more or less fake news. And it happens because one, it's not accounting for the fact that households are, for one, are, are smaller now. Like, you have more single people. If you have like two incomes, then of course your household has more money. Second benefits, it's not just you get your salary, you also get other benefits on top of that. And also you have inflation and you have, like, you have to account for inflation properly. Um, so if once you do all, the, all these all these adjustments, you find that at least in, in the U.S., uh, so GDP per capita has been increasing, uh, even even for all the like uh, quantiles for all the uh, quantiles of, of, of income. So it's it's not it's not I mean sure it, it's not go, it's not like going maybe as fast as it used to, but it's not uh, flat and stagnating. Um, so uh, Tarek Cowen also says, okay, there are there are other things that we should care about if you want to like maximize one thing. Uh, Tyler also proposes to add to what he calls GDP or wealth class. We should also count how many hours of leisure we have, how much spare time we have. We should also count things such as like health or things like um, um, like the the environment. Uh, so maybe if we, if we are degrading the environment, maybe GDP is growing very fast. But maybe maybe that means that in the future it's going to collapse because we are depleting our resources. So I think that, that all those things um, should be really there. But I think that so suppose that someone tries to come up with a metric. That radically, it's radically different from GDP. It tries to it tries to get at welfare, but it at the same time is is not perfectly correlated with GDP. I think that probably that metric will not uh, will not uh, easily correlate with our intuitions about what progress and and good things are. Um, people have tried. So instead of instead of looking at money, you can look at other things. You can look at things like civil liberties. You can look at things like also like uh, gender equality uh, across countries. There are few indices for that. You can also try to also again account in these ways for what uh, the things that Tyler mentioned. And when you when you no matter how you slice the data, you end up with more or less the same rankings. Like all these things usually correlate, like more or less, maybe like more or less sixty percent with each other. Um, and, and just to finish up with, I think that it is important to not just look at GDP or just like raw metrics and just believe them, because all these numbers. The data they the ultimate they, they come from can have mistakes. Um, again, this is an article I wrote, uh, I think, like five years ago about the GDP of Cuba. So Cuba seems to have a very high. So Cuba doesn't seem like a country that's like super developed, but it it seems to have a very high human development index and GDP for that matter, which sounds very strange. It doesn't intuitively correlate with what you expect like a highly central plan socialist regime to have. But actually, if you go down, if you dig into the data. If you go to a world to a World Bank and to the appendices of how the data was made, you find that actually the data people usually give was actually, was actually not correct. They were, they were using they were using uh, like the wrong um, like GDP deflator. So they were converting uh, Cuban in a way Cuban pesos their own GDP to dollars in the wrong way, and also they were <clears throat> and, and also they were other things like they were measuring uh, in this case uh, abortions in a completely different way. If you want to look at at, at abortion rates and other things. So, so if, if you see, if you see a, a number out there, you have to see, okay, where this number came from? Should I trust this number? So you should look at different metrics and, and see if everything is uh, points in, in the same direction of, of, of progress. And if it doesn't, then take the one trend or the trends that do not go are progressing and figure out why. And do you, 
And do you think that, um, do you agree with sort of Peter Thiel's sort of cultural critique of, uh, of sort of, um, not just Silicon Valley, but just the West generally in the sense that we're just way less ambitious that, that, than we used to be? Um, I, think, I think that to, to, some, to, to give credit to, to Peter, I think that maybe five years ago, I was less, will be less inclined to believe that. Now I think he's probably right that there is some to that. I, I don't think is it is the only thing, or I'm not even sure it's the main thing, but I think there's definitely something to that. So one reason um, people have given for <clears throat> for this, I think, is it is it just culture? Can we just restart culture? So maybe what reason people give is that maybe our culture is getting people we're getting older in a way, and maybe once you get older, more settled, maybe you have more to lose, uh, you get you get more risk averse. There may be something to that. So you can look at is it, is it just the U.S. or is it is it like is it a general pattern across all the countries? Is it that is is anyone maintaining this culture of innovation? If, if, so people say, okay, China. So China seems to be kind of like people seem very, and one reason the, the Chinese Communist Party seems to enjoy to support this is because it's delivering much of progress and innovation. People are optimistic of their future. People look at people can look at their parents or their grandparents that were like on the rice farms in a very poor country and now see themselves like, like look at what look at what progress can do. Progress can take you from poverty to this. What can more progress do in a one more generation? We should keep working on that. Well, in the US, it's more like Many people are thinking we're doing all this work for what? We we are not we're running faster, but we're not getting anywhere. People may be thinking that. Um, if we want to get, I mean, as I said, there's probably something to it. I am not going to reject that hypothesis. But if you want to get into quantifying how much of of the of the effect is due to that, that's where it gets difficult, because there is no. I, I think I haven't seen anyone trying to come up with a good metric or like of cultural health index of, of of some kind or 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 entrepreneurial culture index that you can apply to say okay. Culture got worse, and it's causally affecting these metrics in this way. And moreover, we can change culture in such and such way. So, for example, people have, people have said, okay, uh, we should, for example, write more optimistic science fiction, more things to get people excited about the future. That may be true. I mean, intuitively, it seems that it should do something. So maybe one, so we, we, with Peter Thiel, I think he, he likes to think in terms of like broad uh, worldview, high-level trends of, of uh, society. And that, that I think enables him to see things that maybe are not obvious to everyone else. Everyone will be like, oh, this is just like, who cares about that? This is probably not true. But also I think that he also tends to um, just like take one example and then just like uh, just like take it, generalize the example to like, oh, everything everything is slowing down from a few examples. In in, in a cultural case, I think he's may, maybe more or less right. Although in a, with a more constructive um, a mindset, so he, he has rightly pointed this out. And to his credit, he's not just complaining. He, he's actively funding both through, uh, through well, he has like various funds and, and especially through uh, this is lab funding uh, basic science, um, sort of breakout labs. So he's, he's actually trying to to um, to reignite the engine of growth and, and progress. But culturally, how do you restart a culture? How do you make a culture uh, optimistic again? That is something that I don't really have a, a good answer for. I think that's, that's something really hard. You talk about, we're talking about how to change culture. Progress studies sort of came on the scene uh, yeah. last year. Um, t- talk about what, what you think about it, what, what your hopes are, where, where you agree or, or disagree, um, and where it could potentially fit into either, either academia or just you know, culture, culture at large. Yeah, so, so, uh, so Patrick Collison and Dalek Cowan, they came up with this idea of progress studies. Uh, interestingly, so some people uh, have a very negative reaction. They thought like, oh, we're already doing that. Or obviously, like, you are preventing the wheel. Other people, including myself, we're really excited about that. So progress studies, the way I interpret it is to try to be kind of like doctors of progress, to, to try to look at progress in a more holistic way and see exactly what is broken and 
and how you can fix it. Um, and so it sounds like it sounds like an obvious basic idea that surely people are doing already, and people are doing if you people are doing things like this already, but they are calling for two things: one, more more of it. They're calling for more people looking more into the history of progress, what got us here, and should we go back to to that? Should we change anything? Um, and looking at the present, what what things are we doing wrong that are not uh, great for for progress? And then, and then second, to try to get people to kind of like from different disciplines to talk together. So, for example, if you want to understand Silicon Valley as as, a, as an entity, it's like famously, like Silicon Valley is a state of mind. Like you can you can visit San Francisco and, and eat avocado toast, but you wouldn't really know or experience what it is to be in San Francisco if you don't talk to the people there uh, about uh, like startups and stuff. So, um, in so in in that case, you will probably need at least some sociology, maybe some anthropology, history. Um, economics, of course. Maybe you also need some object-level knowledge about disciplines. If you want to understand progress in biology, you need to know some biology. So you need like this very multidisciplinary profile to uh, to look at these things. Now, I think that so currently progress studies. There are a few people. I think I, I see myself kind of like part of this nascent tradition. You also have um, Bert Crawford. He he has his, his blog, uh, The Roots of Progress. It has been like. Um, look, looking at the development of, of various technologies and also running the, this this seminar to to try to uh, it's, it's like a progress studies seminar for high schoolers to try to get them interested in in progress and, and progress studies. Um, I think that that's that's also a um, a great a great idea. I think ultimately, if we go back to this idea of uh, innovation comes from people noticing noticing what's broken and fixing it, you need to foster that. You need to tell people, look, all these things you have around you, don't take them for granted. You you didn't always have them. I think I, I wrote in my blog this thing that you don't you don't demand or you don't want the future until the future is here. Sometimes, like no one wanted iPhones until they saw the iPhone. It's like oh, obviously, and 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 now who lives without smartphones? And it's like, but back then it's like it sounds with innovation. It sounds like we very easily get used to what we have around us. And this is this is not this is not just maybe as, as an, as a society level. If you if you look at say at, at institutions, companies. If you look at, at a startup, for example, if you look at a startup, uh, which I guess also falls on, on the progress side because uh, good management also leads to progress. It sounds like things like good management practices, management books, uh, McKinsey. It sounds like it may, may sound like it's empty, vague advice, but actually, no, actually there are randomized controlled trials of teaching good management practices to companies and it works. So also these things should also be examined under, under their progress studies. So if you look at the startups, Initially, they go very fast. Like everything moves too fast. They are iterating on the product very quickly, delivering, shipping every week. As they grow, things tend to slow down. People become more like, yeah, you know, uh, this tool, like it's slower now. It used to be faster, but uh, like it's not like going to be fire for for this. Um, maybe you you lose some of the of the initial passion from the founders, and and you are replaced with people that just want to do their job in the in, in the entity, and. And then, and again, like you, you joined this entity. You were, you didn't see how fast things were in the past in the startup or in society, and so you don't demand these things to be faster. You, you, you get used to mediocrity. Um, so I think it is very important, both to, in a way, to to look back, to be able to look forward. And I think that this is uh, an approach, uh, an angle that I think it's underexplored, and that progress that the progress studies uh, really will help with. Talk about the broader state of of, of research in academia. And what are the challenges? What can do better? You talked earlier about sort of the, the challenges and opportunities for funding, but how about just like the, the, the way the research organizations are, are structured themselves or, and what, what could be changed about uh, yeah. academia, the way of one? 
Yeah, so the, as I mentioned earlier, so the way academia works, well, there, there are, of course, various ways in which it works, but usually most countries have uh, either, uh, either some kind of funding entity uh, that you have to um, apply for grants to get money from this entity uh, to be able to do research, and you have some positions that are kind of fully funded, you kind of do whatever you want without these grants. By and far, the first model is the most common. So you may think, well, okay, um, if you look at if, if if you try to to get to get deep down to the details of how this works, you find that actually scientists are spending a lot of time applying for grants. Um, according to some papers, to so some people that have looked into this, 50% of their time is actually applying for grants. They are sure they may say they may argue that maybe applying for a grant in a way is, is doing research because you have to be reading papers and writing. It may well be, but half of your time applying for grants sounds like a lot. So some people have tried to quantify how much money is in a way lost in, in this process, because it's not just that they apply for the grants, it's only that people are also reviewing their grants. So in, a, in Australia, I think their, their National Science Funding Agency found that 10% of all the money they give is consumed by, if, if you put like people's time in their salaries, it's consumed by, by this process. Now, this may, this may be a good thing. You may argue that, well, they are spending this time to actually make sure that, that the best science is being funded. But actually, if you look at the literature on how effective it is, it's not that great. Like some papers, sometimes like you submit a paper uh, to three journals or four or, or like, and they will, two of them will react to you, one will accept you, even paper, like even very famous impactful papers, some of and um, they get denied on, on their first submission. Um, also, um, and okay, so, so suppose that you want to improve the situation. Okay, so uh, first you have to take into account that most science is not done by professors or uh, principal investigators or PIs. Most science is done by PhD students, uh, postdocs, and, and people like that, and research assistants. And so not everyone in, in science or in a, in a lab is applying for grants. So even if you manage to have like a system where, where it doesn't take any time to apply for grants, even then you are not going to get 50%, like, like, a, like a huge boost to how much, uh, how many hours are put into science. Uh, so this, this is not like, it's not like it should not be done. It's, it's just that we have to think about what are the more um, impactful areas. So this is, this is one area, uh, grant funding. Uh, I think one interesting recent, recent experiment with this is the FAST grants program from Tyler Cowan. He's funding uh, research in, uh, for, for, for COVID and doing it very, very fast. As in, like, literally they get an application and they reply in like one or two days and the applications are also very short. And the research they're funding, it seems to be also quite impactful. If it appears in the news, it also very. It seems to be judged by researchers as very interesting. So it seems that you you can actually be faster without losing quality, which means that that even if it's not a huge improvement, it is an improvement and it should be pursued. But beyond that, okay, uh, beyond that, what are more impactful things in which that we can do to to make uh, science better? Um, so as I said, one way is to actually uh, um, allocate funding uh, in in a different way. That's just on, on the funding uh, side. So assuming, let's say, uh, that you are, a, let's say you are a funding agency, your funding is fixed, but you're going to spend the money more or less is fixed. What can you do in, you know, on top of that? Um, so well, some people say, okay, maybe you can, um, some of your funding, give it, give, it, give it in the form of lotteries. This is something people have suggested because um, it may be that, that um, some papers may be too, in a way, too risky, too moonshotty, so to speak, and they don't get funded. And so with, with lotteries, you, you actually can, like anyone could apply potentially and they get some money and maybe it's wasted, but maybe you also get some of this weird research funded. So funnily enough, if, if you look at organizations um, that claim to fund risky research, like there is this program from the European Union 
this is like defined risk research. And it's like, okay, what's your rate of failure? It's not very high, which means that it's probably not risky to begin with. Um, so, so, so that's one. You probably want to either to either, to either do more lotteries or have less uh, fewer veto points that people can say no to, to some given research avenue. Uh, so, so as I said earlier, you also probably want to maybe fund less projects but for longer so that people don't feel as much pressure to just like slice their work into smaller chunks and actually think in a more comprehensive way. But there is more. So for example, uh, so um, Laura Deming, so she started uh, the Longevity Fund because she, she, thought, she thought that there's a lot of research going on that is not being translated into our useful applications. And so she wanted to help translate this stuff into startups and ultimately into the, into the clinic and, and pass FDA approval. And you can go also one step uh, further in the, in the pipeline. You can ask, okay, um, is there anything we can do to actually get scientists to actually produce ideas uh, better, to actually, actually uh, uh, lubricate the gears of science itself? And yes, so I guess I, I was mentioning the example of DARPA earlier. So DARPA, we were talking about earlier about organizations like uh, and how as they age, they tend to maybe um, become less dysfunctional. DARPA, to the contrary, DARPA is constantly rotating their, prog their program managers. DARPA is, stays, in a way, young, young by replacing itself very quickly. And what DARPA does is they, in a way, DARPA, people like to say that DARPA kind of invented the internet or something like that. No, DARPA fostered collaboration that led to ARPANET, which was the, the, the origin of the internet. That, that's what DARPA does. DARPA doesn't do research of its own. DARPA pulls, pulls together and coordinates various actors. They were maybe pursuing the different lines of research on their own. And they say, hey, this thing you are doing here, this thing you are doing here in industry and in academia and elsewhere, you should work together on the same program to deliver one easily measurable deliverable. So this is the thing. Basic science, it's difficult to measure if it's going to be impactful. Like no one knows if one given paper is going to be a breakthrough in 20 years. As you get closer to applications, it becomes more obvious if it's if where it's going. And so the DARPA way of doing this is to actually sit in between this basic science stuff and this more applied stuff and actually say, okay, we're going to make an effort to take these things, which are morally, it seems like it's possible to take the set of the art in one field or various fields and make a program to deliver a, uh, an easily measurable, tangible and concrete uh, deliverable. For example, it can be like, like better self-driving cars or, uh, or uh, a cure for one particular aspect of, of aging. Okay, so then they are able to do this uh, because they, like, a scientist, if you're in a lab researching, let's say telomeres, one of the, one of the things that uh, uh, they shorten with aging. If, if you're in lab studying telomeres, maybe you don't care about the immune system because you're not going to publish in that field. So you're not even doing the papers. Like if you want to be successful as a scientist, you have to focus on what you are doing. Sure, some people have more are more lucky in that they, they have more, maybe more funding, their lab is bigger and they can push more topics. But usually scientists are not trying to coordinate their, their fields as such. So this is something that we are that we are missing. So um, Adam Marlstone, so he he's um he's, well he's currently working at DeepMind, but he did his PhD with two very famous uh, scientists, uh, uh, Ed Boyden and, and George Church. So he has this idea of what he calls the focused research organizations, and you can think of them as kind of a smaller, very smaller, maybe like 20 to 100 uh, million dollars, uh, smaller Manhattan projects in a way. Um, the idea of these things would be to actually take research that again, it's it's either maybe researchers, you read the papers and say sometimes, oh, we couldn't do this because we didn't have money. Or you see, hey, this thing here and this thing in this other field, they seem like if these people talk together or collaborated in this way, 
would uh, get somewhere really interesting. Or this field is, is slow because they don't have this specific tool. So we should get them this tool. And so the purpose of, the, of these organizations would be to say, okay, we are going to, we are going to, our aim is not going to be to publish papers uh, or uh, like get tenure or anything. Our, our aim is to actually hire a bunch of researchers willing to solve th this problem. Our deliverables, we will define some metrics and some things we have to deliver and we will actually deliver a, a, a tangible thing. This thing may, may be a tool, it may, it, may, it may be a drag, it, it may be somewhere on the, on, along the spectrum between basic and applied. But that's the, the key thing. It's, it's something that tries to push things more towards being uh, applied. And, and I think that this is potentially quite powerful. I think this is, I think there are not many organizations really doing this. And the idea that Adam had is that with this organization, with this uh, focus research organization, is that potentially even a, even a philanthropist could do could fund some, one of these ones. It it shouldn't have to go through like like the, like the political process to get like a budget for that. Um, and so, it, in principle, it seems that everyone, everyone who has studied like the DARPA model, which in a way this is kind of model after DARPA, everyone seems to think that this is a good way of fostering innovation. You do, you foster cooperation. Research is done; it's not necessarily done in house. You, you can uh, leverage different labs. You, you, you avoid sclerosis by rotating your, your program managers quickly. So, so maybe, maybe the organization maybe it's like we're going to do research for five years. And then we close down. We just like disappear, and then we set a new a, a new one for something else to make sure things are are kept uh, in a useful state at an organizational level. Yeah, and the going back to the sort of organizational design question: How do you, if you're creating your new NIH, new NSF, new sort of DARPA, how do you sort of build in for the fact that these will get sclerotic or bureaucratic over time? Uh, sort of ahead of, you know, Samo Bergia, or Bergia talks a lot about, yeah. you know, succession problem. How, how do you sort of, you know, uh, and that's sort of just one version of the problem of, you know, organizational sort of entropy. How, how do you build for that in advance? That, that's a so, so Samo, uh, as you said, he, I think he had this thing about like, like there has never been a society that lives forever or why, or, or like Patrick Collison also had this question, how do we, how do we design, maybe the opposite, how do we design organizations or what do you think of organizations that don't naturally die? At first, it, it might seem, it may be tempting to say that it's an intrinsic problem that it's difficult to avoid. Like if you if you look at, for example, um, if you look at states, for example, it, it seems like they, like all of them or many of them, especially the bigger ones, that they tend to just like get bogged down in bureaucracy and it's difficult to roll it back and make them kind of uh, like more lean again. So maybe one one thing you could you could do is to try to borrow a page from from DARPA actually. So th th there is this literature on 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 the the sociology of organizations. I think when you're a manager, how do, how do you see yourself in the organization? In how do you think about meetings? How do you think about systems? Um, do you, are, are you maybe unconsciously doing things that make you look good in the organization, but actually maybe it's are not good for the organization? So DARPA tries to break in a way. Uh, I guess. And maybe the broad term is corporate politics. That maybe it's maybe corporate politics is what you want to avoid. You want everyone aligned with the mission of the organization and not so kind of their own self uh, benefit. Um. So so I said DARPA manages to do this by lots of rotation. Uh, Elon Musk, like the Elon Musk companies, like Tesla, or SpaceX, from what I've heard from people that work there, compared to other places, it's more it's easier to get fired in there. And if you're not performing, uh, so teams have a, a lot of. Uh, uh, but if you're a manager, you have like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, power to do more or less what you want within your realm. But if you're not performing, you're just kicked out. Like it doesn't matter if you're a senior engineer with like ten years of experience. 
if you don't deliver, you're out. And and maybe you can replicate some, um, some of this. I mean, I'll, I'll again, if you look at the psychology of managers, like people don't like firing uh, employees, like as a, on, a, on an emotional level, they don't like that. If you're a manager, you would make you may try to protect your 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 direct reports against being fired, which again, again, it, it's it's understandable, right? It's like it's you you see them every day; they are kind of your, your colleagues. You don't want them to be fired, but maybe the organization needs them to be to be fired uh, on a, on a kind of it's it's kind of maybe like, like a prisoner's dilemma. Maybe it's good for your team, but it's bad for the organization as a whole. So maybe something you could do is the following: there is this idea that uh, again comes, this comes from the idea of, of quality engineering the iso 9001 standard and this idea is that you should make every role in your company extremely legible so legible that if you fire someone tomorrow you can bring someone in and the next day they can start doing the job like you don't everything is so clearly defined that everyone fits in what they are doing and you can actually easily replace uh, people uh, uh, easily you don't have like vague institutional dark matter knowledge that is there like implicit knowledge in the organization that makes it difficult to to rejuvenate or replace people once you have that kind of organization that is very much plug and play then you can actually do that you can say okay we are hiring you for one year like you don't hire an employee indefinitely you hire for one year and after one year regardless of how they were they were doing their contract ends and you hire someone else and that would maybe maybe that's this way you could also you could avoid some of, of the politics uh, the risk here is that you you may lose some of this institutional knowledge, knowledge of what happened or was tried before, that that you don't want to repeat the same mistakes in the future. DARPA tries to fix this by both keeping records of what they did, and then second, because current program managers, they can all just talk to previous ones and they can see actually what worked or, or what didn't work. So maybe this this, this, this would be the, the one thing. So uh, next time you start a startup, then you can be like, okay, you're hiring you for one year. Now, if you're applying for this job, I mean, from the point of view of of, uh, of getting a, a like an indefinite contract, like until like until you're fired versus you're in for one year, it's it feels less stable. Like it doesn't feel like, I mean, it it, it feels worse for for the for the employee. Like you are, why would you choose this one year contract? Um, if the if organization maybe it's very innovative, very interesting to work for, maybe you are going to choose it, or maybe if it's not one year, maybe it's like more like five or three. Yeah, but that's it. I think that ultimately, it may be more systemic than than we than we think. I mean, it's it's the it's both the way the organization the way the organization gets designed plugs into the way that that which people are going to, re to recruit and who's going to willing to work for you. What kind of corporate corporate environment you're going to generate? And so you may have this paradox that the environment that works for the long term is not the environment that works for the short term uh, like acquisition of talent. So you end up with this, with this paradox that that there is no escape, perhaps except if you are in a specific situation, like in, like in the DARPA case, if you are a particular kind of organization, maybe in that case, you can pull it off on that page. And and that's it. So for, and then in general, you have uh, another, the strongest force containing uh, institutional degeneration is the market. Like, like you maybe, you, you can fool politicians into funding you as much as you, you may be able to, but you cannot fool the market for, for that long. Well, maybe if, if, you're, if you're Theranos, maybe you can keep it going for a while. But eventually, you actually, actually people catch up. So for so companies have this. So so, so this this is a way that I, that again that the that systemically you solve this problem by having market discipline. So if your if your company is performing, it gets replaced. Okay. So again, in a way, this pushes the problems either to monopolies or uh, large uh, government entities like again like the NIH or even the FDA. So for example, again taking the FDA, we we're talking earlier about 
uh, the, like about the government getting governments getting a slower sclerotic and, and, and less innovative. So suppose someone proposes to break the NIA to, to, to break the FDA in half, like to have two FDAs. Both FDAs can approve drugs. They have their own separate procedures and they can do their own thing. Now this sounds kind of recipe for chaos, but the European Union does this um, not in not not, not for, for for drugs, but they do it for for various things. So you have this. You have like loads of regulatory agencies, all of them, all of which can certify that your product actually complies with the standards. Um, so you can go to any of these regulators. So if you're Spanish, you can go to a Spanish one or the German one or the English one and any of them, uh, and you can actually shop around to see um, which one actually uh, has more know-how about your particular innovation. So they actually uh, get it through. And then, and, then, uh, and then if for some reason, your innovation product actually gets through, um, and, and do you even meet the standards? Actually, so, so for example, suppose you have a medical device or an elevator that actually falls down, actually it's broken, then you, uh, uh, states will be periodically sampling the market for those products and, and testing them, that, testing that actually they actually do what they say they do. And if they don't, they force companies to pay a, <laughs> a huge fine and recall everything they everything they sold and recall it back, which is a strong incentive to comply. So so, so you get both like less upfront costs to actually getting things through. And you also get a surveillance element uh, coupled with it. I think that this is, uh, again, maybe this is something that, should, that shouldn't be straightforwardly applied to, to, to drug approvals, but maybe if you have two FDAs and you have like a meta FDA of sorts that imposes which criteria you should apply, you should apply for, for drugs. So maybe if, if, you're, if you open your own code FDA and you have lower standards, then maybe you can approve drugs, but only for, uh, maybe your drugs you have to like clearly clearly label them. Maybe it's only for one specific set of people. Maybe it's maybe it's only maybe maybe you allow um, like let's say people that are like terminal patients to, to try them while the other FDA would not. So in so in, in in that way you are you are in a way going from one one veto point to, to many parallel veto points and any any and any one of which could let one innovation through. Um, so that's uh, that's I guess also another, another recipe. But yes, I think the 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 general. The general case of this problem, like what's the right the right way to think about this kind of long-lived institutions, both private and public, I think it hasn't hasn't been fully solved yet. I think we have some heuristics and some examples of things that may work. Now the, the challenge is to see exactly when this, these patterns can be applied and when they made it to, to failure. Yeah. Do you where do you disagree um, at all with sort of Biology Srinivasan's thoughts on on the FDA. I'm not sure if you if you followed his or or just uh, uh, Jim O'Neill or other sort of people in sort of the Peter Thiel ecosystem who sort yeah. of have strong views about the FDA. Yeah, so the I guess that angle of the FDA that the FDA is too conservative, that the FDA is, is like saying no to too many things. That may be true. I mean, but uh, so one argument given for that is that the the number of the number of drugs approved per uh, amount of funding going into R and D for for drugs. Was going down so the so-called Irum's law, like Moore's law in reverse. But that, funnily enough, that doesn't seem to be true. for the last five years. That's not true anymore. It seems to be flat. As in, we are. It's not getting worse. It's kind of stale. And the number of the absolute number of drugs being approved is going up. Um, so it's it's not that bad. Um, now there are there are some papers indeed. So if you look at uh, some papers in the in the economic literature showing that indeed the FDA is being conservative, conservative not not, not only in the kind of things they approve, um, but also on how much time they take to, to approve things. And, and again, the, the FDA has improved I think by a factor of five uh, how fast they approve things 
since I think they was in the 60s or 70s. So they're they're improving it. It's, it's not it's not like that, that everything is bad. Um, but there's something to that. So if I guess there is the so the the reason the FDA well, it was founded was it, was this uh, people were scared about, about uh, thalidomide, this drug that when when pregnant women they take with the, their their kids were born with uh, with various deformities and it's like oh, never again we're going to stop this. The thing is that the that uh, there is a, a cost to to safety ultimately. Uh, ultimately, you are you are paying some some cost for that. And so if you do um, a cost benefit analysis of the FDA according to which papers, you find that that actually you want to let more drugs through, even though you may actually you, they may have side effects. People will die as a result. So you have to live with that. So if you're willing to actually say, okay, what we care about is like it's the uh, the expected increase in the total number of uh, like disability adjusted or quality adjusted life years. If you do that, in some models, uh, you should actually let more drugs through. However, I think that, well, there is something to this view. There is also the, the, the opposite view that the FDA is letting through too many things, specifically too many things in the area, in the area of cancer drugs. And again, if you look at, at these papers in this literature, but okay, so this drug costs uh, this much. So some of the newest one because like uh, like hundreds of, of the, the treatment can cost like hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, sorry, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, if you look at these treatments, how much do they do they work? They seem to work, but the effects are so small. They add maybe they add one or two extra months of life. That if you think of the of, again, of this like of if if you're, if you're going to, to put the price tag of of, a, of an extra life of an extra year of healthy life, they are not worth it. So, so if uh, if you don't approve these drugs on the aggregate, the economy will be better off. Now, the the question is, um, what determines the price of drugs? <laughs> Another funny one is that suppose that you are like a pharma company, you just develop a new drug and you want to put the put uh, you want to put the price on that, what you what you put in there. So, most in most other places you put the price whatever price that will that more or less the market will more or less people will buy, but it's it's not low enough that they're not going to make money. So in that case, there are some cases we made that companies as price their drugs are as high as they humanly can, as in as high as they can without getting blowback from or bad press. Because at least from some drugs, Medicare, so once a drug gets FDA approved, Medicare has to pay the cost of the drug, no matter how much it costs, <laughs> which is kind of like, like a bit of a, of a, of a bad incentive. Um, like you are incentivizing that you develop this like marginally improved drug that doesn't really help much, but you, you're you're then throwing all all this money behind that. I'm sure. I mean, it, it may be different if, if patients are paying for their own drugs. It may be different, but to some extent, and also if you count for like both Medicare and Medicaid, it, it's not quite like that in the U.S. If you if you go to the U.K., for example, the U.K. has this organization called Nice uh, National Institute for Care uh, Standards or something. I think. Well, what they do is exactly that. They, they assess therapies to see um how how effective are they and how how cost effective are they so nice will say okay you are you are 70 years old like your life expectancy is only a, like a few extra years we are not going to pay for the, the, the public the public healthcare is not going to pay for your treatment because you are not worth it and likewise they will say okay this uh this for example thing uh these newer treatments uh, with, with car t uh, antibodies car uh, chimeric anti-interceptor so these ones are extremely expensive maybe even one million dollars uh, the whole treatment so these ones, they will only pay for them if you are like 25 or younger. If not, well, good luck, I guess. That's their approach. It, it's, an, it's a more like a, uh, more, a more draconian approach to cost control. But I think if you have a public health system, you have to have something like this. And the US is in a way trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's trying to give the best. 
again, to its credit, people like to criticize the US healthcare. The US healthcare system, if you can afford it, is the best in the world. Like if, if you have cancer, you will live longer if you're in the US than, in, than elsewhere. But there, there is a cost to that. And maybe that cost may not be that much worth it. Secondly, it may incentivize that companies, be, uh, they may be focusing on things that are just incremental, incremental improvements um, just because they can get through FDA approval and actually deliver a small improvement. They can do this one because they know they can charge these high prices. And second, because the, the way drugs get evaluated, it's not, they don't do like a randomized trial with people and they put, they don't like randomly put cancer in them and then they see what happens. No, they usually take either um, either cancer patients and then they didn't measure necessarily the, the mortality rates. They measure endpoints like how big the, the, the tumor is or how does it look like. And with those endpoints, there is this physician, physician called um, uh, Vinay Prasad. He, he has been writing this, this book on, on, on the effectiveness of cancer drugs. And he's mostly critical with that, saying that, that it may be incentivizing pharma to, to, to pursue these like, uh, less effective drugs. So, 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 so again, uh, rather than, than, a, than a simple story where the FDA is being too permissive or being too, uh, too, cons- uh, like, uh, too, too, too conservative, it may be that it, for some cases, it's being too conservative. And for others, it's being too permissive, which again, I think it, it uh, I mean, this, this will be another interesting progress studies question. Like actually breaking down the black box of the FDA and saying, okay, in which exact way should you change the FDA? What specific families of drugs should you change to actually get the most out of the out of it as a regulatory entity? Totally. No, that's, that's good. So have, have you studied our, our, our healthcare system or what makes great healthcare systems versus poor healthcare systems and why is the U.S. sort of uniquely um, bad and, and what could be done to, to change that? Yeah, so I, a few a few years ago, maybe three years ago, I, I kind of looked. Into, I mean, I didn't look into 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 enough depth to write like fifty thousand words about it. But I, I think that the so there's this initial take that goes like uh, I, I guess I, I guess the, the textbook case would be something like well, like there is a some kind of public uh, like uh, public goods or externalities problems problems uh, around healthcare. Maybe people are not well enough informed about their own health to make choices about healthcare providers. Oh, there are other things like uh, vaccination, that vaccination is nationality. So, so if, if it's up to people, they're not going to get vaccinated. There are these arguments that, that people make uh, claiming that it has to be a public system. And, and if it's not, then it's going to be super expensive and it's not going to work very well. And But actually, if you actually, again, if you look at things, you look at how different countries do it. I think that picture is not, is not so much, it's not so simple. For example, one very simplistic thing people share is life expectancy in the in the US and healthcare expenditure. And it's like, oh, it seems like the US spends so much, doesn't really get results. Sure, but you have to count for various things. One, for example, is that like things like um, obesity rates or diabetes rates in the US, that they are quite high. Um, perhaps for reasons that everything seems to be very sugary, uh, everything has high fructose corn syrup in the US. You also have things like accidents, like the US, People in the US have lots of accidents of, of various kinds, both traffic accidents and accidents at home that just increases their their, their mortality risk. You also have uh, and you also have uh, things like that. You, um, also, these this statistics may also be biased by uh, like, also like national level genetics. So, for example, countries like Japan or Spain are very long lived, and actually, actually, probably the, the 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 city that has the I mean, like more or less large city that has probably the most long-lived population uh, average life expectancy I could find is Madrid in Spain. It's more than Tokyo. It's like 80-something 80, 80 years on average. Now, if, if you look at Hispanics in the U.S., they live longer than, than whites, uh, or non-Hispanics, whites. Even, 
even I think even like if they have like lower in income, they still will live longer. So there's something to that. It may be diet, it may also be diet and not just genetics. But uh, there are all these factors that yes, that makes it seem not so simple. There's also the fact I mentioned earlier about cancer rates. So again, the, the US healthcare system delivers um, delivers uh, better outcomes if you can afford them. Okay, but it's famously not very affordable. Why is that so? Then uh, you get into other question. So one reason is that uh, ideally you want the you want uh, the, the the production of things to be tied to, to your consumption in terms of money. You you want um, you want to, to be to easily see okay as a patient I'm paying this much money and I'm getting this treatment. You don't really see that much in the healthcare system. Yeah, it's usually heavily intermediated first by the fact that you usually get a subsidized uh, or a tax advantage uh, insurance from your employer. Uh, you get this because of a, of a historical tax reasons in the U.S. But this this means that there's less of an incentive for you to get an individual uh, or for people to offer individual um, insurance and for people to actually see in a more obvious way how much they're spending uh, in, in healthcare. There are other things like, for example, hospitals. Suppose you want to open a hospital in San Francisco to compete with the other ones. Well, you cannot just do that. You have to, the thing you have to get is, is called a certificate of need. You have to prove that 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 they have, there has to be one. And, and it's like, who, and it's like, you need, you need permission. It's not like, it's not like a, it's not, it's not like permission by default. You have to ask for that permission. And it may be, they may tell you, we really have enough hospitals. And it's like, yeah, but mine is going to be super cheap. And it's like, ah, sorry. Um, there are other things that you also, you also have in the U.S. More so in other countries, you have lots of, uh, well, the U.S. in general is extremely over, in a way, legalized, or maybe that's not the right word, but it's very litigious. People really like to, to sue uh, each other. And when you get lawyers and, and, and law into the picture, you also get cost inflation because people get defensive. So if, if, if you're an MD and, and your, your, your patient is not paying themselves, their insurance, why not just do loads of like, uh, like MRIs and very more expensive things on them just to make super sure about what you are doing? The cost to you is minimal. The cost to the patient is minimal because the insurance is, is again there, again, in some cases. So you're, you're again incentivized to do this. You also get other things within hospitals. So most hospitals in the US essentially are non-for-profit, <laughs> even though some people question that they're really non-for-profit given the salaries uh, they pay uh, to their both board members and, uh, and, and physicians. But again, one, one way the, because you may think that being non-profit means that they will try to keep costs down as much as they can, but not necessarily. You also have other things. Again, just, again also from, from looking at, at international experience, for example, take, uh, take eye surgery, um, a very, yes, uh, for cataracts or something like that. So if, if you go to India, there is this, uh, this uh, chain of clinics called the, the Aravind Eye Clinic. And they they have they, they actually they are certified by a U.S.-based uh, agency as providing levels of care equal to the U.S. that adjust for, adjusted for labor costs because of course like labor in the future but adjusted for that it's cheaper than what the U.S. achieves. The one the way they they, they achieve this is by making their hospital their hospitals in general into more of, of an assembly line. So if you're a surgeon, you're only ever going to do either one kind of operation or one part of one operation. So you're, you are highly trained to do this one thing and doing extremely well. So you may get like one patient, your operation, they get out, you get another patient, your other operation, and you're operating over and over. This, I think the, the secret sauce for, for efficiency in general, like one thing we know works across the board is assembly lines, le- learning by doing and, and focusing on one thing at a time, if, if we will maybe a comparative advantage. So uh, by, and by doing this, they can greatly, greatly uh, reduce costs. By making by making healthcare more of an assembly line, 
you also get, I guess, as an additional thing, you also get um, occupational licensing. So uh, suppose that you just, just want to be an, an MD and just want to practice and just want to get going. Do you really need to go through like all this super lengthy learning process? Maybe not, maybe yes. But, the, but again, the reason it is that way, so if, again, if you go back in time to the way, this is the American uh, uh, Medical Association, the IMA, before that, people were, there was more freedom for people to, to practice medicine. People used to even like, pull money together and they will ha have like a, like a group, uh, like, a, like an MD or a doctor. So if, if you have, if you have like a trade union or, or some company, you have like, like the company doctor. So you it was not more uh, like your personal doctor that you saw kind of all the time. Um, and that was like free from, from these constraints. Now the AMA lobbied against this kind of arrangements. This is like, no, like doctors have to conform to our standards and they have to be taught in our way. And, and then, uh, and well, for other matter, the same is true for law. Like back in the day, Practicing law was way easier. It was more accessible than it is now. Again, you got like this equivalent decision in the US for lawyers and they lobbied heavily to actually regulate and control the, the sector. There are some unclear things here too. So some people have argued that it, that one ingredient here is that uh, MDs and doctors in the US have very high salaries compared to other, uh, to other like service workers. Some people argue, argue that they are not. If, if you compare them, but then you also can make the argument that maybe all the other highly paid service workers in the US are also, it's also due to all the systemic problems. So, so, so you're not comparing doctors against, against well-functioning sectors or comparing doctors against equally bloated sectors. These things, for example, finance or, or, or law uh, in that case. Um, so again, the, to recap the, so suppose I am as a thought experiment, suppose, and I think Brian Kaplan has this interesting essay called for the separation of healthcare and state. Suppose everything is purely private, or suppose you have something like if you're truly poor and you cannot afford it, then uh, then uh, the state will will cover that. If if you go fully private, what happens? So Singapore has a system that that, that again is not market based, but it's kind of what well, people argue that, that the market would evolve towards. It's a system where you, you are you're in a way forced to save. Hospitals uh, have different that. Uh, uh, levels of care, like maybe a sanitary level is, is very cheap, like you had like a not, not a very nice room, you, you don't get as, as many like uh, uh, like goodies. If, if you pay more, then you, you get more things in the hospital. And to some extent, people who pay more can are subsidizing for those who, who can pay less. And also so probably for, if you could make one change like to, to US healthcare to, to make it, uh, well, Donald Trump is making already making one good step here. He's making first hospitals to make their prices public, which is one step. But really what you probably want to make is make for things that are potentially very expensive, uh, you probably want insurance for that because maybe the alternative is uh, like saving lots of money just in case. But for things that are regular expenses like uh, various drugs, you probably want to make those have to be paid out of pocket most of the time. Those things are not really insurance. Those things are unexpected costs. Like you, you are. It's, it's not like it's in, in the only outcome of that is you're being insulated from from the from the cost of of, of a thing. And again, deep down, it, it all comes down to, to a values question. Are you willing to tolerate that the system is, is not going to be it's not going to be saving the most lives as possible while being cheaper? Because that's the case in the US. There was this huge debate in the US, right? About like so-called death panels, about people deciding who lives and who dies and rationing funding. That's I mean that's you know one way public systems ration costs. But again, if 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 culturally you are you are not willing to say no to this, if you're going to say we're going to do as much as we can, no matter the cost to save a life, then the outcome is uh, increasing costs, and 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 that again is like how 
Um, how do you convince people? How do you, will you culturally change that? If, if someone is, let's say, 70, uh, it's, it's okay for the state to say, uh, we have done enough and it's you're on your own now. And there's also like, a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, healthcare expenditure is also concentrated on, on a few subset of, of people that are also quite elderly. Um, this may sound quite uh, maybe uh, lacking in empathy or callous, like saying that, but again, I just, I'm just saying that one, this is the way public systems do it. And I'm not saying that it should be the way to do it. I'm saying that there are probably better ways of both getting more care, better care and cheaper. But if you want like the easy solution to go to go public, like, if you just magically make the US system like a, like a pure, like a, like a, um, like a, a single payer, like just public, I don't expect costs are going to go down by much, uh, if at all. Because again, like uh, you will need some kind of system like, like this to, uh, instead of the market, you need some entity to actually push the demand down. So this is kind of like a preliminary analysis. I may well be wrong in many of these things. There's also, of course, all of this the discussion around the the, the, the BOMOL cost disease that maybe uh, Alex Tarrock argued that maybe it's it's just normal that, that as countries get rich, they spend more on healthcare. It may well be, but it's like, you look at how, how many issues it has and it's like, oh, surely, okay, maybe if you fix all these things, it's not going to get 10x cheaper, but surely it's going to be so much cheaper and maybe more cheaper than Alex Tarrock thinks. So in any case, regardless of the effect we expect, we should uh, fix uh, these things as we see them. Yeah. And do, do you want to say more about Mark Andreessen and others point to sort of, you know, housing, you know, we're talking about healthcare, education as sort of being the, uh, the things that have continued to, to go up. Is, for the, for the, do you know about for like the moderate American, if those are the biggest costs or what is sort of the pie chart, or the pie chart of, of the biggest sort of expenses that the median American that, that, they, that they have or any other things you want to say on either um, housing or education or, or, or elsewhere in terms of you know, bending these cost curves down? Yeah, I think definitely those are big, uh, big items in the, within the, uh, I mean, and, and across the, the entire uh, like, uh, income stratum in the, in the U.S., um, those sectors also, it's, it's actually a good to, to, point, to point at them together because these are also sectors that are heavily labor intensive. So, and if you look at also, actually, I said earlier that, that productivity growth, TFP is, is slowing down. But if you break it down by sector, you may see that some sectors are going faster than others. And the sectors that need to stagnate the most are healthcare and education and housing. One reason for this, besides, of course, uh, like housing regulations, like, is that you run with, with the limitations of what a single person can do. Like if you're building a house or if you're treating a patient, you cannot, you cannot physically as a human being move your arms 10 times faster and, and do surgery 10 times as fast. You cannot, you cannot just do that. Um, that's a limitation of us. So to, to overcome that, you either, need, you either need automation, like have robots do it for you, or you, need to still, you can still have humans, but then you need assembly lines. So uh, in, in the case of housing, for example, Suppose that you want to, so San Francisco has famously, compared to other uh, major uh, cities, doesn't really have a very high population density. Suppose you want to replace all the housing in San Francisco. How much would that take? Uh, assuming, assu again, assuming there are no regulations stopping you from doing so. So one way you can accelerate this is that, well, you could, that couldn't you just have a factory and just like, just like churn out, like just make houses on an assembly line, just like make, so there's this, this company in China, they do exactly that. They, they pre-manufacture lots of pieces and, and then they, they assemble inside everything that they need. And they have been able to like, I think it was like a 10 or 100x uh, faster construction speeds for skyscraper uh, kind of buildings. Now, these skyscrapers may look boring. They are literally just more or less square 
glassy pieces of, uh, of construction, that, which also ties into, into the values question. So if you, if, if you don't have regulation stopping you, if you can manufacture things in assembly lines, do you want everything to look more or less the same? People look like, no, we want diversity. In that case, you, you, you move towards a more one of a piece uh, kind of building like a skyscrapers. Uh, like, like each of them has like their own fancy uh, design by famous uh, architect. It's not, it's not like you design one. Well, it's, it's not like you usually you don't design one and then you make a hundred copies of the same skyscraper so that you can learn how to make how to build build faster. Um, except maybe in in Hong Kong and you see some some faster construction speeds there. So so that that's a thing. Um, I think one one sector that maybe has managed to overcome this issue is. Uh, the ship construction sector, as in the construction of like large cargo ships and things like that. So if you look at the time it used to build like large ships, it, it took off like years and a long time. Now the way they are designed is that they are again designed and they're also labor intensive because you have to like manually, you have people actually rivetting uh, parts together, people managing the like the, the cranes actually put parts together, soldering different things. But what they do is that they actually split them in different sections and they can manufacture the whole thing in parallel and then just like assemble it's kind of like in, in terms of tech, it's, it's like a map reduce approach to, to building ships. And that gets you like the 100 or 10x improvement that you need to actually see tangible uh, improvements. But not only other thing, going back to the regulation thing, uh, there is this, uh, this company called Factory OS. Uh, I think it was founded by A16Z, I recall. And they're trying to do something like this. But it seems that if you go back to the 60s, 60% of all housing was built in factories. It was prefab housing, like lots of it. We, we don't, well, I mean, I wasn't around back then, but I guess in the current discourse, people don't really think about that. Or, or, or if they were around, they don't, didn't remember that. Or maybe they were not aware of that because uh, you, don't, you don't really know where your, your house came from or something. And then you wonder, well, okay, if factory housing is so great, how come it's not more widespread? Well, because you have like the American like, House Building Association lobbying against that. You had like, you had them privileging mortgages for regular housing in, instead. And so having regulations against this kind of housing. <laughs> and so, so it's, it's, it's again, it's not always that, that it's just like science and progress slowing down. It's, it's sometimes um, that even, even if, as Mark Andreessen, he heard this article, uh, uh, it's, it's time to build. Even if you do a, a call like, uh, to, to actually people like, we should, get, we should actually get our shit together and, and get building. Even if you want to build, either it's, just, it's so difficult that it's not worth it uh, economically, or it's just, just outright impossible. As I said, if you're going to actually go and build a hospital, it's not just like you can just do it. You have all of these thicket of regulations uh, around you that, that prohibit you from, from actually building. And this is why I say that, that the, the cure for many of these ailments is probably going to involve a heavy dose of politics. Like you really need politics to unlock some of these avenues for, for, for progress. And I think that there is, uh, in, 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 the, in so Silicon Valley has been traditionally, um, uh, I say more or less away from politics. You have like, well, politics is kind of slow moving and you know, and, 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 and with an Uber show that you can just like do it and then they will just approve your, your uh, after the fact, uh, whatever you're doing. But I think that there is this trend now of people worrying about institutions. You have things like, um, well, what this, uh, like well, Samo or so, also um, Palladium Magazine, uh, everything around charter cities, um, which again, ch charter cities also in a way, this thing about everything is lost, we cannot fix it, so let's make new ones from scratch, which is which may well work, but that may be the, um, the thing. Totally. One of the things we talked earlier about is you would put more resources towards biology, you know, yeah. encourage more people to go towards biology. Yeah. Where within biology should, should people focus and uh, do you think is most opportunity or life sciences? Yeah, yeah, so, I think, so I think that the, the, the point of biology thing that the things most people want out of biology are cures for various ailments. 
Um, if you look at, for example, what things we have managed to cure over time, uh, one is, well, ironically enough, infectious disease, that has been going down a lot. Um, now we have COVID, so that's the kind of thing reverted, but the, the, the things that mostly uh, that, that people want treated are things like cancer, diabetes, uh, various forms of uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, atherosclerosis, Alzheimer's, uh, all these conditions that people want treated. If you have all these conditions, you can say, well, okay, uh, we should fund cures, drugs for these different things, or we should also fund, of course, tools uh, to so that enable uh, researchers to actually investigate these cures. But as a, as a systemic approach, ultimately the human body is tightly integrated, right? Like, like all these things kind of get worse at the same time. I mean, if, if you're young, um, like you rarely get cancer, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease. It's very, very rare. And even, even in children, like the kinds of cancer that children get are very different and for different reasons that the ones kind of, that the ones that adults get. And so the, the question becomes, okay, uh, well, obviously there is something going on here. It, it's not like, it's not like, uh, like, like all of these things are uncollected and you should research them on separate. Um, so ultimately I think that the one thing that should be tackled by, uh, by, by biology funding is aging itself. And so, so aging is, uh, it's, an, it's this process so, uh, so, um, where we go from like being, like being more or less young, healthy, very resistant to, to like disease, to this other state where we progressively get worse and eventually die. And you can actually show that if you look at all these conditions, like all of these things that we want to cure, all of them, you can trace them back to a, a small set of things that correlate or, or, or that you can call aging at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a molecular level. Um, and then the thing is, well, our bodies already have mechanisms to repair themselves. It's only that they degrade or get worse over time. And there are other things like that. What if, uh, fixing a small set of things by, by focusing on this small set of things we could tackle everything in one go uh, so for example imagine this sort of experiment suppose that the only things you die from are cancer and cardiovascular disease and that's it suppose you find a cure uh, and also suppose that they happen more or less at the same time suppose that you cure cancer completely there's a pill that cures cancer lifespan is not going to change that much because you will still die from something else so what you want to do is to actually uh, to actually find find the root causes of all these things and fix them now, this science is extremely difficult, right? Because like the human body is so complex, so many systems. Uh, it, it's not like a car where you can like easily think about like all, all the parts and the way they are moving and actually write equations about very precise how their movement and things. You have like literally proteins stochastically colliding with each other and, and reacting uh, in, in random ways. And it's like to think that you can actually fix that, it's very difficult. But I do think that that's probably the right, the right focus as a general framework for funding in, in the area. I want to uh, get into uh, aging and, and longevity, um, and that's a space that you've looked at uh, uh, and gone pretty deep in. Why don't you sort of walk through sort of your research a little bit, the discoverings, uh, discoveries that you, you've made, the sort of misconceptions people have on it. Why don't you just sort of, uh, you know, un- unpack your, your thoughts there? Yeah, so I guess about aging, I guess probably, especially listeners of this podcast have probably already heard various things. Uh, there are various things people say that, oh, like, uh, if we manage to live longer, maybe we will either care less about life or, 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 or we only give meaning to life because we eventually die or things like that. Now, I think that those arguments are really not that interesting. If you look at people, empirically, if you look at people that think they're going to live for a long time, there is this guy, uh, the Aubrey de Grey, he's a biogerontologist and he's very optimistic. And he thinks that, um, that we are going to solve aging kind of, kind of fairly soon. So in effect, he's living as if he's going to live for a long time, perhaps. But he, he, he's really hard working and he, he feels really motivated. So I don't think that that should be a problem. I think that the, the top one misconception is that we cannot do much about the problem. It's kind of like a defeatist attitude. We, in this case, we just accept that 
that's life and that we have to cope with it and maybe that, that maybe there's some things we can do like maybe you can change diet uh, and exercise and things like that but but we cannot go beyond the very basics that we will eventually get old and die and as you know maybe 80 89 100 maybe if you're very lucky and that's it so i think is that one well, there is no principle in physics that tells you that you cannot do that. And there is, well, there was this debate back in the day between Aubrey de Grey and Brett Weinstein, of all people, Brett, uh, Eric Weinstein's brother, and others. And the conclusion from that debate was that, like, sure, like solving aging seems to be possible in principle, right? I mean, there is no like thing that prohibits you, but it's extremely hard, uh, of course. Um, the maybe, but maybe a misconception might be that 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 the also the systems we have to repair ourselves and to counteract that are also very complex and very uh and, and, and very uh have lots of redundancy so it, it's, it's not like it's not like we are in this like carefully balanced state like, like we, we are young and then suddenly we get out of balance uh, and then we suddenly get old like, like from one day to another no it's a, it's a steady slow decline so the, the thing is that if, if it's if this mechanism is more or less managed to keep you healthy and functional for decades what if we just either repair some of the damage or get these mechanisms to work better, to extend life. Um, so someone might say, well, but you know, eventually something is going to happen and you're going to, you know, like something, you get cancer. Well, you have like, if, if you look at the animal kingdom, you have like this kind of species of sharks and they live for like 500, 500 years or 300 years. Or like, if you if you look at other animals, like uh, like lobsters, like these tiny rats uh, called the naked mole rats, they, they don't really get cancer much. And so the hope is that, well, it doesn't seem like you're, we are condemned to to have to have uh, uh, these things. And sure, this is all probabilistic. Like like uh, probably when we, whenever we get to a cure for cancer, let's say that will be maybe like ninety nine point nine percent of cancers for the for the leftover. Maybe we need to do something else. But the but uh, at least systemically, it does seem like we can both we can look at looking around us in, in animals. We can see that lifespan varies a, a lot. And then second. This is more on, on, on the experimental side, but looking at uh, both like uh, mice or, or worms and doing like some genetic engineering on them, we can get them to live in the case of worms 10 times longer, which is quite a lot. It, it seems possible in the, in the case of worms, like with this tiny change, they get them to live so much more. With, with, with mice, it's not that easy. So what you usually find, and I guess this is also um, going back to the point about cancer and atherosclerosis that I said earlier. So if you look at the literature on, on aging, right? Like if you, if you look at this literature, the way it looks like, it's like different people trying different interventions. So again, you may have, uh, there is this, for example, this company called Unity Biotechnology, and they have this thing called Senolytics. Senolytics, which are drugs that target uh, the single senescent cells. They have cells that stick around, generating inflammation around them, which then leads to other things like atherosclerosis, cancer, and other stuff. Okay, so you can clear the cells and you see an improvement in median uh, lifespan, I think, and also in other various biomarkers of, of, of health. But for all these individual things, you don't usually see a huge improvement in maximum lifespan. That's that's really difficult to change. And this is probably happening because you need to have this systemic approach to, uh, to all these causes at, at once. So if, if you manage to um, dislike uh, this worm, and you manage to to like avoid it from getting cancer. But again, these worms don't really get cancer. It's only like in their in some specific cells. But if you manage to do that, then eventually there uh, something else is, is, is going to uh, is going to uh, make the worm die. So you need you need this systemic approach. So so currently the the literature on aging is a structure around what is called the, the hallmarks of aging. This is, this is a set of a few uh, six, six or seven things that have been found to correlate with aging, and some of them to actually 
uh, cause uh, aging uh, as a primary thing. Uh, for example, um, one thing that's probably more or less known is telomeres. So, so telomeres uh, get, get shorter as well. Telomeres are these, in, um, in our chromosomes, we have these like end caps and, at the end that uh, that when they, they get too short, the cells uh, stop replicating and, and become uh, senescent. Uh, and, and again, senescent cells uh, generate this, this inflammation. So telomeres shorter because cells don't have, uh, or the, the enzyme that would long, uh, elongate telomeres, is called telomerase, is not active in, in most cells. People think that the reason it is not active, it, it's not because it's damaged. It's, our body does it on purpose. It turns it down. In theory, people speculate because if, if, uh, as a defense mechanism against cancer. So if, 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 if there's a cancer cell and it's replicating very fast, the telomeres will get shorter and eventually the cancer cells will stop replicating. So uh, this is why people, uh, for example, Aubrey de Grey proposed, well, to cure cancer, we just need to, using something like, like gene editing, actually take out telomerase from everywhere, from all of our cells. Not just uh, because ultimately all of our cells, they share the same, well, most of them, they share the same DNA. But like, like, uh, but a, a neuron is not the same as a cell in your eye, or or in your muscle. So they have the, um, they have, they have like different different uh, regulatory programs, uh, so they can turn on and off different genes. And so most most cells, other than the stem cells in our bodies, they don't express this gene even though they have it there. It's only when it, when it mutates that it gets expressed and lets cancer spread. Uh, so the worry is, okay, if you just give telomerase back, you may get cancer. Or if you take it out, conversely, if you take it out and telomeres get, keep getting shorter, then you get senescence, inflammation, and also you also get cancer anyway. <laughs> so, so you so you need you need a systemic approach. So you say, okay, um, telomeres is, is one thing. Another thing is a stem cell depletion. Uh, so as we, we in, in our bodies we have stem cells. These stem cells they stay they are they are able to replicate. They're able to to to, uh, to split into one is a stem cell and the other one is a cell from the, the tissue they are in. So, and then that way they can, in a way, replenish, replenish some of the cells that get lost in, in that tissue. Well, over time, they get degraded in both, uh, both in number uh, and also the, the, in a way, the, we may call the effectiveness of the stem cell, how good they are generating healthy cells of the tissue uh, gets degraded. You also see things in, in cells like, uh, like, again, I mentioned like cells are basically proteins colliding randomly with each other. Sometimes they get stuck in ways that cannot be unstuck easily, this, uh, and then that causes problems in the cell. The concentrations of the different proteins in the cell stop being the, stop being the ones that are required for, for, for health. This is called loss of proteostasis. And you can go on and on about all these things. I guess maybe as a more helpful conceptual framework, you can think of aging as maybe two components. One is noise, and the second one is more of an evolutionary programmed aging kind of thing. Um, so, the, for example, the idea here is not that that you, we evolved to get age on purpose. It's that, is that, um, for example, that the that the mechanisms that are useful when you are young are not so useful at least at least evolutionarily when you are older. So, for example, if we if we evolved uh, to live to like forty or, or thirty years in in, in prehistoric times, we we wouldn't have evolved a system to fight cancer. Or like to, to delay cancer longer than that because it wouldn't make sense, right? Like, like evolution doesn't really worry about what happens after you are dead. So likewise, um, I think maybe the, the, the most the striking thing that is kind of on the program end of things is the evolution of the thymus. It's kind of something that I've been really looking into recently. So the, the thymus is this gland that is located between your lungs. The, and the, what it does is that uh, you get from the bone marrow in your bones, you get these uh, hematopoietic stem cells. These are cells that become 
red uh, blood cells and white blood cells, like, like uh, T cells for the immune system. So these cells then, then go to the thymus to, to get trained, to learn to recognize uh, um, antigens, pathogens, and not to, to attack your own body. And then they are, they are released to, the, to, the, to your bloodstream and then they can effectively fight, they, they can fight cancer, senescent cells, uh, and infection, of course. Um, what happens? Well, as you age, this thing becomes a lump of fat. It, it, it stops being useful and becomes just a bunch of fat. There, our argument for that seems to be that that it's really, in terms of energy, the, the immune system is very expensive. Like keeping all these uh, immune cells around is very expensive. And then evolution just shuts it down uh, after a while. And the reasoning would be that, suppose that you are in a hunter-gatherer tribe, you're more, more or less in the same area. After you're exposed to the same pathogens for a while, you, you, you develop immunity and, and, and memory T cells. Your immune system already knows how to handle those. So there is no point in keeping around all these cells that can recognize new infections and, and kill them. And, and likewise, uh, it doesn't really make sense uh, for evolution to actually keep these for senescent cells or cancer, because again, you are not going to be living for that longer. So, so evolution shuts down this thing. But then, um, but then again, it's like, okay, can we just bring it back? Can we just like, can we just like make it younger? Uh, not, um, not just like kind of undo any damage, just like literally make it the same as it used to be when it was young. And so there is this research, there are various lines of research here. So some people say, okay, why does it shrink? I think, what, why exactly, uh, at a molecular level, what is it causing it to shrink? Can we just target that? And you sure, there's this, there is this uh, protein that's uh, called a uh, trans transcription factor FOX1N, uh, which is in fact, as you age, it makes it shrink. And if you, if you inject that uh, in, in, at least in, in mice, the thymus grow, uh, grows again in, in, in old mice. And you see uh, um, uh, things like inflammation going down and like, uh, uh, like so-called naive or like T cells that can react to new threats. Those ones go up in the, uh, in, in the body. You'll see uh, the, the ratio between, so in, in our immune system, we have both uh, an innate and an adaptive component. So we have both uh, this component that kind of learns and this component that is more uh, kind of kind of garbage collecting things around. Uh, and so the uh, as we age, we get more of this garbage collection and less of this uh, adaptive uh, and, re and responsive system. And when you regrow the thymus, you also get more of these adaptive uh, system cells uh, getting back into action. And so in humans, uh, but again, uh, people say, oh, things maybe only work in mice, but does it work in humans? So in humans, it's more difficult to, to test these things. In mice, you can inject things into them, stem cells, you can do transplant of thymus. It, everything shows, everything is aligned in the right direction. It seems to work. But in humans, it's hard to do this test. So what they did, there was just this recent paper, and what they did is to give people human growth hormone, uh, DHEA, which is something that some bodybuilders take, um, some zinc. So zinc is also something that, as we age, we absorb less, less zinc. Zinc, and, and it's also uh, crucial for the immune system functioning, some zinc. And then they also gave people uh, um, metformin because human growth hormone can make you more prone to the diabetes and metformin counters that. Uh, okay, so what, what they found is that, that, that again, these bio, various biomarkers, inflammation goes down and so on and so forth. And in some of the subjects of, of the test, uh, they, were, they were like older people, their, their hair was kind of white and it became more kind of gray. It's kind of like it began to to kind of look more gender than the hair. This is more this is more on the anecdotic, but very visible change. Um, however, the the way they measure or the way they think they they show that they were actually able to reverse some of the aging was using the, something called so called um, um, epigenetic clock. Uh, this was also something I wrote about in recently in my blog. 
the idea here is that, uh, as I said, if, if a DNA in our in our genes, uh, in our uh, in our chromosomes, is like the program or like the or, uh, that we execute, the epigenome is kind of like the metadata uh, that that is used to interpret the DNA so that each cell can do its own thing. So as we age, this uh, epigenome, so the um, the epigenome sounds very mysterious, but it's, it's just like a bunch of molecules stick to the DNA or uh, or other molecules called histones that also have these like like little tags attached to them. So as we age, this thing, this these little tags, they seem to change in the same way for most people. And so so this guy from UCLA, I see Horvath, he's like, well, can we use use a use a very simple machine learning model? Uh, using well, it's a it's a linear model, very simple one, to estimate how how old someone is just from looking at their epigenome and, and nothing else. And they managed to find a correlation between just looking at that an age of like over thing like 80 or 90%, like extremely like plus minus three years accurate. And not only that, on, a late, on later work, they show that with the same approach, uh, they, they are able to show uh, this so-called degree age clock. They're able to show how many extra years of life you have left. That's what the clock predicts. And, and, they, and the, the hope is that if, if I test you today and you are, let's say that epigenetically or biologically, you are, let's say, 28 years old, Next year, you should be 29 years old. But if I apply this therapy to you and you are next year 28 years old, it means that you you, can, you kind of wind back the clock by one year or more. So in this case, you did it by two years or so, which, which is quite uh, intriguing. Now, uh, in when little bits in mice, they don't live forever or anything. They, they live a bit longer, they're more healthy, but it's not a like, comprehensive cure. There's more work to, to be done here uh, in, in that field. Um, so what, uh, go, go, I guess going back earlier to the point about uh, uh, organizations la, la, like DARPA that, that try to coordinate different fields, it seems that the, the cure for aging or the, the reason why maybe some people are pessimistic about a cure for aging is that most papers try one thing. If you try one thing, you, you're not, you may, maybe you're only addressing one, one, either one cause or something that is not a root cause, something that's just like downstream of that. Um, so you're fixing that, but then something else is killing you anyway. <laughs> so you're not. So you find this very funny phenomenon in these papers, so-called compression of morbidity. You find that if you plot how many individuals are alive at one point in time, it more or less looks more or less like everyone is alive 100%, and then they drop and, and then you die. When you give these treatments, it's more or less the same. Maybe they start dropping off a bit later, but at the end, by the same time, everyone is seen by by the natural lifespan. They tend to also drop off, meaning that. You fix one thing, but everything else uh, was not fixed. So what you probably need in the field of aging is something like this, something that says, okay, like I said, seriously, what are, what are the root causes here? Uh, what is going on? And because you could say, okay, um, senescent cells. Senescent cells are, uh, yeah, sure. You can target them in the clinic to, 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 to fix uh, cataracts or, or, to, or to tackle arthritis. And for example, uh, Lord Deming invested in, in, in Unity, that, in that company, and, that, and that's a great thing. But you wonder, okay, why are, there, why are there so many senescent cells? Is it that we're generating more as we age? Or is it that we are not killing enough as we age? Where is the imbalance? Uh, so instead of just like, looking at things that, that happen to make you feel or seem younger, you have to think about what are the ultimate root causes. Um, and I think that this is probably going to be two things as i said going back, going back to the beginning noise i think when cells replicate maybe they don't fully replicate perfectly or the epigenome doesn't fully it's not it's not easy to maintain it uh, through life so you need to fix that and then second the you have this, this program component maybe it's that your body doesn't really want you to have a big thymus and doesn't really want you to, to take anything 
because also uh, also another thing that apparently zinc may be also useful for uh, or actually lack of zinc may be more useful to tackle pathogens you have already seen but not so for newer ones there are some papers that speculate why it might be it might that be and i guess to, to drive the point home that that this kind of program aging thing matters um, if you if you look at one of the reasons these small worms see elegance one of the reasons they die is because they their 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 intestines as, as they age well the intestines are initially they are taking some fat from the body to kind of feed and generate eggs from which new worms will then hatch. But as they age and there are no more eggs they generate, this mechanism continues working, even though the worm is not eating as much. It's kind of like uh, kind of more, uh, it's not moving as much. But this mechanism continues acting. In a way, the worm is eating itself to kind of, but because there are no eggs, it just generates a lump of fat in within itself. So um, so you have to be, all these mechanisms that, that sound like they're great when you're young, but not so when you, when you are when you're older. So if you look at it, say, things or people say when they talk about aging. Uh, some people will talk about things like caloric restriction or, or fasting, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, ketogenic diet, or vegan diets, or even some, some people carnivore diets, which I'm kind of not so sure about. But at least at, at a molecular level, we do know that those things do work. I think uh, it's uh, it's not just that people some feel, they feel better. It's that if you go at the molecular level, there's this, this protein called mTOR or Called molecular target of rapamycin, and it's it's a, effectively it acts as a nutrient sensor. So if you don't have enough nutrients, uh, this may mean you are not eating enough proteins, or you are not eating enough food. You're, you're hungry, so this thing becomes downregulated downregula or less active, which means that then then in turn that causes the cell to in, in to do more uh, autophagy, which is it will more readily uh, destroy or like eat uh, its own organs and make new ones. Again, going back to how you rejuvenate organization, uh, like keep high turnover, the cell begins to do more of this exact same thing. And there are some drugs like rapamycin, for example, that can directly target this without having to, to do any, any fasting. This thing again seems to work. Like it's, um, it's, it's difficult to find one intervention that if you try it in, in mice, in worms, in, in flies, in humans, in monkeys, it works. Rapamycin seems to work everywhere you test it and have like sizable effects. Maybe, I mean, maybe in, in, in mice, maybe it was like maybe 20, 30% maximum lifespan or something like that. Now, some people are worried about rapamycin, particularly because rapamycin, if taken in high doses, is an immunosuppressant. So rapamycin will, it's used for, the use of rapamycin usually is to, when you get a, a transplant, it's used to uh, avoid reaction of, of the transplant. The plan, if you use it in a low dose uh, on, a, on a periodic cycle, it might actually be, be helpful, although you, need, you will need a, a, pres a prescription uh, anyway. It, it's currently, it's not, uh, even though you can prescribe label, uh, drugs for off-label use, it's not like, it's, it's not easy to, for an MD to say, okay, I'm going to prescribe this for because of aging, even though you seem to be fine for your age, which means that you're not really great for <laughs> in any case. Um, some other interesting stuff. So I guess that maybe people are familiar with the TV series uh, Silicon Valley, right? Like the, there is this uh, idea of the blood boys, <laughs> the idea that you can take blood from young individuals and put it in old individuals and use that as a means of rejuvenation. And there is something to that. So they, there is this very old study uh, that they actually co-joined like, like an old <laughs> and, a, and a young rat together. And they found that um, Seemingly, the, the the old rat seems to get younger, and, and the young one seems to kind of get older. Um, so that, that's kind of like too promising. So more recently, uh, they did. Uh, there are some uh, trials people have done with this same thing, 
uh, only that instead of something as crude as, as stitching together two animals, instead they either inject uh, um, a blend of of, uh, of uh, plasma, plasma factors of plasma. If you if you take out from your blood, all these like uh, immune system cells, uh, red blood cells, what is more left over is more or less plasma. If if you put if you put like things that you think are in, in the young and you put them in the old again in mice, you can see that they the tissues when you look at them they look younger. There when when you when you uh, cut them, uh, the those wounds heal faster after that. And even though there is still no data for, for, for experiments on longevity. On, a, on another trial, if we are willing to believe this stuff out the epigenetic clocks, if we are willing to believe that, they did a study using, um, uh, well, there was, there was a study actually. They found that they, they were greatly uh, rejuvenated. And now they, they are, they published the paper without publishing how much longer they lived. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a little bit unclear how, how much it worked. And, but again, this kind of shows that, that there was something in the blood that maybe it's making them older. And our recent paper kind of seems to show that maybe it's not so much what is in young blood, but maybe it's what is in old blood. So if you take an old mice and just take half of the blood out of the plasma and then put like, uh, just like put uh, like water with, a, with some salt and albumin, this is like nutrients, the nutrients and minerals that used to be in the blood, just put them back, put that weight of that, nothing else. That also seems to improve health, like uh, without any young individual involved. And the mechanism also might be that the, that the body is saying, "Hey, we we are missing loads of things in blood. We have to make more of them. And when it's making more of them, it's making newer ones, which are maybe uh, because they are just like freshly made. They are younger uh, instead of just like keeping around the ones that you used to have." Totally. What do we think about the cultural problem around? You know, many people are averse to to extending a lifespan? Like, do you think that that's something that we'll just get over as we get closer to the, to the technology? What do <laughs> yeah. you think about the cultural resistance there? Cause I, I, I think that's holding a lot, a lot of people back now from maybe working on it or, or um, for it, ha- it having more money or government money or what do you think about that? Yeah. I think that, 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 that kind of meme or idea, I think is probably going back. I think that, that at least perhaps we have, because I'm biased. I mean, most people I usually talk to, like younger people, they they usually accept the idea that yes, I mean, uh, like you don't want to, like dying is bad. <laughs> it's a big news. But maybe some people are, maybe they're concerned instead that they have to live forever. But that's also not the case. So if if anything, it will be optional, right? Like, like you could say, okay, uh, I've lived a thousand years or whatever. I don't want to keep going anymore. Fine. I mean, it's it's not like you're going to be forced to do so and for for other people maybe i guess what what over the gray he calls it like the the, the i think the, the death trance or something he argues that because aging or death is so prevalent like like for for all of our history we haven't been able to to get over that we developed this idea that that it's actually okay it's like an stockholm syndrome of some kind like you actually think that that the bad thing is actually good and we, we begin to think that oh maybe maybe aging or well maybe you know like the Maybe it's good to have like death so that it is meaning to your life or things like that. I think that getting, I think when you get to, to the specific arguments around that and, and the empirics of, of what people say that like, say, okay, if, if you live forever, you are going to get lazy and you're going to be playing video games all the time or something like that. I mean, one, if, if you're living longer, you can actually do that. It's like, uh, um, you can say, okay, this year I'm going to be uh, in, in a Buddhist monastery. Next year I'm going to play video games. Next year I'm going to do a startup. Next 10 years, I'm going to work at like Twitter. Next 50 years, I'm going to be a researcher. Next, again, 60 years, back to the Buddhist monastery. So it, it's not like 
like living longer is going to reduce your motivation. It's going to enable you to do more things. So it, it puts more uh, of the of the of the of an effort on you to actually decide what you want to do with your life. So life currently it's more or less structure. You grow up, you go to school, you get a job in one thing, you usually stick to the, the one thing, then you, you retire and then you die. But with this, that doesn't necessarily hold anymore. You can have different it's very easy to have various careers. And I, I, I said, this is in the very, very long term, assuming that, because I think nothing of what they mentioned, so everything I've mentioned more or less would get you a few extra years of, of, a, of healthy life. It's not like we are going to live forever tomorrow. Um, but in the extreme case, I think that's, uh, that'll be something like that. So I think that um, it's probably a meme that would just die as people get replaced, which again, it's also maybe another concern. So this this uh, thing that uh, Max Planck said that, that science advances funeral by funeral. It's not like people adopt new ideas, it's that all people die. It's the it's young people that adopt the new ideas and then they spread them. So some people say, well, if, if people live longer, like, and, and moral values, and maybe it's, if, if we are only, only more responsive to arguments when we are younger and, and our views become fossilized to the age, we're going to end up with maybe the, the people that are kind of in the in the commanding heights of our societies in, in politics and business and places not being replaced by, by younger people with newer ideas. Now, this might not be so bad because, I mean, if you are truly rejuvenating, including the brain, maybe maybe some of that uh, lost uh, flexibility is regained, yeah, one thing. But maybe you may also need or to actually have structures where that are more conducive to, uh, to replace them. I don't know. In many cases, I think that the that um, that like like other worries, like for example, some people, some people worry about overpopulation. That if we if we just take more to die or just die, then we just over, we'll overpopulate the planet, and it'll be a catastrophe. We say that those things uh, will be so far into the future that the solutions we can think for them right now probably won't have to do with actual solutions that actually tackle those problems in the future. It'll be like like oh like like uh, I guess. Um, there are so many more horses in the streets now. We're gonna, we're, what are we going to do with all the manure? Well, nothing because there are no horses anymore. <laughs> so that may be that may be it. Totally. L- l- let's segue into um, education. What are sort of the non-obvious challenges that you see, or, or opportunities, or how do you think about either? Uh, you know, we talked about uh, higher ed a bit, but just the, the problems in education, maybe K through twelve, and the, uh, the how do you think about some of the opportunities there? Or how do yeah. you think about? That? Yes, because, uh, education, I think it's kind of popular to say some people um, are kind of like trying to either improve education, both presential and also remote education, trying to try things like homeschooling. Um, they, they look at, uh, at higher ed and say like, hey, uh, can we improve this? So my, my views or maybe my high level model for education is that the way it currently works now is probably not ideal for the, 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 the outcome it's intended to achieve, namely to, to instill knowledge uh, to people. So is that um, so Brian Kaplan, I think is mostly right that education acts as, as a signal that, that uh, for example, uh, I mean, I, I have two master's degrees in aerospace engineering and mechanical engineering. No one has ever asked me for that, those degrees. Um, I mean, they could, but you know, maybe I'm lying or something. But with those degrees, even though the jobs you get with those degrees, like let's say software engineering, don't have anything to do with, with, uh, with like, uh, like building uh, internet combustion engines, but they certify that you are hardworking a smart person willing to work on the same thing for, for a long time. And that's a quality that's desirable in, a, in an employee. Now, of course, uh, you, some people may claim, well, but maybe you are learning some like, high-level thinking skills or something. Well, maybe, I mean, there's some of that, but it's not the, 
the, the key thing that is coming from education, maybe like 60 or 70%, I think Kaplan says, is the signaling uh, effect. Um, ultimately, I think this happens because um, at the cognitive level, if, if you want to if you want to get good at something, you have to mostly do that one thing. So the idea that doing, let's say, for example, let's say that playing chess is going to get you better at music or, or biology, it's, it's not true. It's literally not true. Like there, there is very little evidence of, of uh, so-called transfer learning uh, in humans. And so um, all of the things you have studied that you are not using right now may well be uh, wasted time to some extent. Some things may be useful, like, like if, you, if you learn how to learn effectively, that's a useful skill that you may develop in regular education for sure, but you may also develop it in um, elsewhere. Um, so besides education itself, as in kind of like a, a starting point, it's also the point that looking not at higher ed, but at like K-12 education and, and education for, uh, for kids, kids are being forced to, 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 go to, to, to go to school. Like It's not like they, they go there because they want. So there is this point that Mason Hartman, uh, her, she from Twitter, um, she makes the point that, 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 the, that schools are like a little jail so that the kids are forced to go. Now, I think that kids, um, that most people in the education ecosystem are not really thinking about their situation. Like kids are not like mostly like, oh, this is so awful. Like, no, school is a nice place where you meet other kids uh, and you play with them and like maybe, maybe we'll get you a job. Like what you're doing will somehow let you get a job. So it's not that bad. For some kids, for sure. For some kids, it's awful. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a boring place where you are not really learning useful things. You could be learning more on your own and things like that. So definitely having a escape, having escape valve, having been, be, making it possible for kids that want to escape the current system and learn on their own. I think that's definitely should be an option. Uh, and that's the case of a homeschooling. So if you wanted to, I, I guess maybe it's more, more of a moral point that, that, that you shouldn't force people to do things they don't want to do. Um, the case, again, the, the, the usual rationale when you want to do that is a, I think when is paternalism justified? I, the general argument I think is valid is that when people systematically regret something uh, that they did in the past, then you're justified in being paternalistic with them. And that's probably the only, only case. Like, I don't know, like suppose that you just want to eat sweets and, and, and when you're a kid and vegetables because you don't like them. Um, but then suppose that most people that grow up like that end up obese and with diabetes. And it's like, oh, had I known about this when I was young, I wouldn't have done this. Well, if people are like that, then you're justified in restricting people's choices, but only the, in that case. Now with education, what is the justification for, say, teaching uh, geography or Spanish, for that matter? I mean, most people, uh, I guess it's something that Kaplan documented, most people forget about their, their second language they learn. It may, it may be an interesting conversation piece that, oh, you know how to say hello in, in Spanish and stuff, but people don't, don't really become proficient in that unless they have a special interest in that one thing. But the reason these things are taught in, in schools is one, so teachers, the teachers that teach them, they, they they care about those things, they, they study them, and then they think they're important. So of course they want to teach them. Second, they think that maybe it's going to be somehow helpful in the future. Um, somehow maybe it helps you think. Um, it seems plausible, right? Like it's, it doesn't sound like, like it's nonsense, but again, if you look at research, it doesn't seem to wear out. So suppose that you have an alternative model. Suppose that instead you have you teach math, you teach reading and writing, kind of the basics to, uh, to get going for most things. Maybe you teach them maybe basic physics, some maybe some maybe maybe some philosophy, some like way of thinking, maybe some 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 things around uh, good argumentation, what is good argument, what is good fallacy, spotting issues in argumentation, maybe some things around self-regulation, noticing where you're angry or feeling something that is leading you to to be uh, thinking less clearly, maybe some of that, which is kind of broadly useful. But then what? Maybe you want to just uh, give people 
um, some um, free space to actually say, uh, to actually explore anything they want. Uh, if people say, well, you have to teach kids music just in case they are interested in music and they want to pursue that career. Sure, maybe, but you have to, you have to teach everyone and they have to teach a full year of that. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe you can have like shorter taster sessions of that one thing that, that kids can, can, can then pick up. Um, okay, so that's that's for the kind of maybe the, the the more the more interesting question is maybe not so much what's the best way to learn something, but it's more what should be learned in the first place, which I guess is less talked about. Um, because sure, like if you want to learn something, like there's this literature that I can discuss that that goes into what's the most effective way of getting knowledge into your head. But why should you put knowledge into your head in the first place? Uh, if you're a weird person like me, you want knowledge for the sake of knowledge. In that case, you you just want the knowledge. But if you just don't care about the thing you are you are forced to learn, that maybe you just don't need it. You shouldn't be forced to efficiently learn something useless for you. Totally. Talk talk about uh, uh, Bloom Sigma. Why that's why that's interesting. Yeah. So the, there is this phenomenon. So, so <clears throat> this phenomenon called uh, Bloom's Two Sigma. So the idea here is that so suppose again, suppose you want to you have already agreed that you want to teach something. You want you want your students to learn something. So the most useful or, or robust way we have to get people to learn is using a personal tutor. So having one person, that one expert with you that both knows what you know and also knows more or less the way you think and the way, uh, I, think, w- I think, in which ways you get stuck. And they can help you exactly in a very individualized way to advance. So if um, so, this, is the, uh, this, this thing gets the, um, I guess, in the original studies, this guy, Harold Bloom, back in the, a few decades ago, so he found that, he found that with, with, with tutoring, you find like huge effects in getting students to learn certain things, fine. But tutoring doesn't scale. Like you need one person to tutor you. So how do you make tutoring scale? How um, how do we distill what is useful from one-to-one tutoring into something that can be readily extended? And so he, he found this thing called, called um, well, I guess that, that's the that's the um, uh, Bloom's uh, to Sigma problem. Finding something that is as effective or has an effect as large as the two sigma effect that you get from tutoring. So he found a few things. So he found the, maybe the, the, the core component of what he found is called mastery learning. So the idea here is that when teaching something, you break you break it down into, into a logical progression of steps built upon the previous one. Seems reasonable enough. But then you don't go to the next step and until at least 80 or 90% of the material is perfectly mastered. Like you don't leave any gaps in the understanding of the students. You can do this either for the whole class, in, the, in, which, in, which, in which case, some students will be doing like remi- like a remediation or remedial classes to actually study the material again and try to do it again, while other students will be doing like so-called enrichment activities or doing more like open-ended random stuff. Or you can do it on an individual way where each each kid, each student will uh, do it advance at their own pace. So some will finish earlier and some will finish later. This has been, has been tested both with uh, regular like K-12 education, also for disadvantaged kids. Also for also in higher education too. I mean, higher education for like things like training surgeons. So it seems like a pretty robust uh, thing. Now the effect is not too quite two sigma. It's not as large as Bloom originally found. So the usually as for this whole literature, people trying to look for ways to uh, to improve the way we learn is kind of spotty and not great. It's not like um, like probably the the, the average. This study the, the average effect in learning outcomes from hundreds of randomized control trials of education is like 0.04, it's like nothing. It's almost, it's very small. Only, only a few things uh, seem to work. Um, so, okay, so we have this, this thing about mastery learning. Mastery learning, by the way, it seems to work better uh, for disadvantaged kids uh, in, 
So it, it seems that if you are if you have more like higher capabilities and, and, and IQ, maybe you are able to figure out and, or monitor yourself more uh, than than in that otherwise. But okay, that's that's one way. Um, I guess this is still requires humans in the loop. I mean, you still need a teacher that has been trained in this whole uh, like, uh, paradigm of teaching. What if you could do your software to the same thing, right? Um, so this is an idea that that will, I guess, the, the easiest or the simplest version of this is to use a space, a space repetition system. So maybe people are familiar with the work of uh, uh, Michael Nielsen and Andy Matushak. So they built this uh, built-in website, uh, Quantum Country, that teaches quantum mechanics uh, and embeds in the kind of well, it's a kind book or website. It embeds in the in the work itself as a cards that prompt you to actually think about things you just learned, to actually constantly remind you and keep fresh the knowledge in your mind. Again, this thing works. It's also the base of things like Anki or flashcards. You actually keep constant exposure to uh, to the material you actually want to commit to memory. This is kind of like one way you can do it in software and you can use it to, to, to learn something. It's unclear uh, when you want to use this thing because for example, suppose you want to learn how to program. Um, I mean, I, I usually program in a, uh, uh, in, in in Python, I never use such system for, for language. I use it all the time. So, I've, because I use it all the time, it's more or less memorized already. What, it, I think it mostly works either for things that are you just want to learn for curiosity that you're not going to use, or things that you expect you will probably need, but maybe not now, or things that maybe are adjacent to your area of research that maybe are not as you're not you're not looking into this right now. Or of course, if you want to impress your friends with your broad knowledge. Of like of like saying, oh, in 1965, the 4th of January, this guy invented that. That sounds very impressive. You can also do that with SRS. Okay, but you can, you can go further than that. So surely one can wonder if you can have human tutors, why cannot you just have software that does everything they do, having a module that monitors how students learn and a module that monitors what they know, and then they can suggest interesting questions to the student, give them the right problem sets and so on. But there's also a, a small literature on this, um, on, on the so-called automated ed education systems. And maybe the, the the key learning from this is that they are difficult to make. You need a lot of domain knowledge to actually make the systems. So for example, uh, if you wanted to make a system, a system to learn, uh, like, let's say quantum mechanics effectively um, beyond, let's say, uh, like the quantum country, you would probably need like an actual quantum mechanics professor, a bunch of them, and also experts in education working together to actually build the system and think of like, oh, if the student asks this question or if the student thinks in this way, we should actually do this sort of thing. And maybe then how do you model knowledge in your students and how do you know both what they know and how they know what they know so you can actually debug their thinking? That's really hard problem. The most promising thing here is a study that DARPA, again, DARPA keeps showing up, that DARPA did in for the US Navy back in, I think the year 2005 or six or so. The, what they did was to, to actually build uh, one such digital tutor, the digital tutor program it was, to teach uh, te uh, um, uh, like IT technicians for like, uh, um, like aircraft carriers, for, uh, like destroyers and other ships. And they found that actually uh, across various trials and measured in various ways. So uh, the, the specific way they measured the students was a knowledge test. It's like tested them like uh, just like pure knowledge questions. Also a case study test, they actually took previous case studies of the things they had to solve and they were more like open-ended open -ended. and also an oral examination with, with experts. So it's, it's like, like three different assessments. And they found that the, the effects are so large that it's not, they sound implausible, so large that, that the students were better than, than their instructors, that people that had like years of experience are doing the same thing. It sounds really incredible. Um, so 
And again, this sounds very strange also because uh, even the studies seem robust. I mean, they, they repeated these, these things, it's multiple measurements. So it seems plausible, but if, if, if it's so plausible, why haven't they followed up? Why, why isn't there a startup doing this at scale? Why are not uh, public education systems? Uh, they could develop one such system and then deploy it to all their schools. Why are they, they're, they're not doing that? I think one, it might be just because of lack of knowledge. Uh, so they don't know these things exist. Second, lobbying teachers probably don't want to be replaced, um, which is something I learned also from my past startup life. And then lastly, um, uh, because maybe you need all this like, domain knowledge to actually build uh, these, these systems. Uh, incidentally, I asked, I, I met once with, with a DARPA program manager and I asked him about this thing and then this thing, he knew about it. And he, he was going to look about it, but he, he actually never came back. Maybe he should follow up, but he, it was like, it has like more of a, it's like a known thing at DARPA. This thing is there and it worked, right? But no one knows what happened next or what they haven't followed up uh, with this thing. Which again sounds very suspicious, but maybe it's just one case where the thing that DARPA was meant to do, like like push the frontiers and, and get these things from academia into in, into into broad application, it's one thing that maybe they have they have only done it partially, uh, and maybe there is a there is a market there for someone to actually go and and, and do it. Um, I think that probably if you wanted to, if you, if it were possible somehow to like lobby a large education system, maybe maybe this thing is is extremely expensive to build. But once you build a general tutor for math and reading, then it's done. Like, and you can deploy to all the schools. Maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can have an international uh, collaboration to building uh, one system like this. And then you can, and then you can kind of uh, spread the costs across many actors. Let's talk about the entrepreneurial state. It, it's a, it's a, a book you, you covered a, a while ago. When you um, talk about what that book is trying to do, uh, any misconceptions around it, and uh, where you agree or disagree. Yeah, so, so the, the, the real estate was published by this Italian economist Mariano Mazzucato uh, actually a few a few years ago now, and this book, uh, in, what 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 it seems to say is that actually uh, the state matters a lot for for innovation, um, and that uh, and that um, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't like discount the role of the state, and that even I mean you can add other claims like uh, state is required for for innovation. Some things would not have happened without the state. Or Apple and the iPhone were were added, or Google are there thanks to to the state. And then other claims like actually Google and Apple and so on they should pay back to the state for all these uh, investments. Uh, I guess this this literature can be framed in the context of recent debates about uh, industrial policy that like people are really getting really excited about that. I'm not so uh, enthusiastic about that. I think uh, I think that there is a legitimate case to be made that it worked in the East Asian countries. But when when people say that that the, that Western countries got rich with industrial policy, that's uh, as far as I've seen in the literature, the consensus is that no, that that's that's fake news. Uh, that it doesn't go that far. The the, the state, if we want to understand what it does, there are two things. One is that the book itself says it, that it's meant to be kind of a pamphlet meant to. Uh, instill policy change and discussion. It's maybe not meant so much as an academic work as such. And also, if, and, and you can also see this from like the language it uses. So to put it in in, in the way Tyler Cowan would say, the, the aim of this book is to raise the status of the state within the innovation ecosystem. Um, of course, I mean, uh, of course, like it would be extremely naive and wrong to think that innovation is just people in their garages, it's like doing stuff. I've talked about the important role that DARPA uh, has played, the NIH, those, thing, those things cannot be, uh, neglected. But then if you look at some of the concrete examples that she gives, she, she's going perhaps way too far. So if, if you take the, the iPhone, for example, 
So she may say, oh, like the, uh, uh, well, actually Apple, let's say Apple. Back in, back in the day, like the, the state made an investment in, in Apple and that was really entrepreneurial. Okay, fine. If, if, you go, if you go into, into the reference, this is actually a, a common theme in the book. If you go to the citations she gives, sometimes the citations contradict directly what she is saying. Um, so in this case, what happened was that there was this, this bank called this was the Chicago, this, don't remember the name, but this bank uh, gave a loan to Apple. This loan happened to be guaranteed by my uh, Sun Goran program. That was it. But it wasn't even that the loan was given to Apple at the very beginning. So Apple already had gotten a lot of funding from private investors. So it was, it's not even that you can argue that Apple needed this thing to exist. So you cannot say that they needed the funding intrinsically that without the state, no one would have funded the, that thing. For the, the, the iPhone in particular, so if you think about it, so what, what made the iPhone so great? I mean, the iPhone, I, I'm more of an Android person, but the iPhone was marked uh, uh, basically a beginning and an after in, in smartphones. Like, you had like, like everything we see now is probably, they're probably a spiritual descendants of, of the iPhone. But the reason the iPhone it was a, such an achievement was not necessarily the thing she talks about, uh, which I will describe in a moment, but it's, it, it, it's, it's a combination of design and integration of software and, and hardware. So all the other manufacturers, everyone ha had access to kind of the same hardware. So you could potentially, if you were something, you could have built your own uh, iPhone without any further basic research, but it was Apple that actually did that. So the, 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 so the, the reason Matsukata may say that the iPhone was due to the state is that it's just, for example, well, things like, well, like, like the uh, like GPS, for example, or Siri. So Siri was developed at this uh, Stanford Research Institute, which gets uh, which gets public funding. And Siri, is, I think it's a, a good case of it. Siri was directly a, a case of a state uh, investing in something and then getting it. But again, Siri, how core is Siri to the iPhone? It's like it's it's more of an extra it's, it's more of an extra feature. More looking at more tangible things like if you look at semiconductors, if you look at, at the chip that actually go in, in, into the iPhone. Like sure, you can also, again, make the case, I mentioned earlier, this research consortium, Sematech, that was half public funded. And you can also make the case that the, the US Air Force played a huge role in the, in the birth of the semiconductor industry. Sure, you can say that. But then that kind of sounds like one that without that investment, they would have, you'd have gotten anywhere. It's like, are you saying that this breakthrough technology of broad application that was actually also being used in, in, in other industries too, wouldn't have gotten anywhere without, without this stimulus from like like the, the air source in these microchips so i guess the I guess there is a case to be made that some investment from the state made some things happen earlier than they would than what would otherwise have happened but i think that she doesn't really make a case for the stronger argument that they would have never have happened in that case so likewise many of the other things she mentions are things that um, she wants to paint the state as something as an, as an entity that, that is actively as a, almost like a single entity that takes risks and is entrepreneurial and it's like, well, I mean, it's not really like the state has access to tax funding and also to debt financing in huge amounts. It's not like if, if you're a VC, like you have to be very, very careful about what you're funding. If not, you're still bankrupt, you're, you're out of money. Like you cannot defraud your, uh, your LPs for forever. The, the state can keep going for, for more. So it's not really taking those risks as much. Um, if you look at Google, for example, it's like, oh, what's the origin of Google? So well, first Google was not even the first uh, search engine. Google, before Google, you had loads of them. They kind of died for different reasons. The algorithm that Google used was not even that much of a wild innovation. The, the, the uh, algorithm that, that Baidu in China uh, uses when it was born, it's similar kind of to the one that Google uses. So it's not like it was only able to be discovered in that one place. But, but more of that, Google was developed by, by the, um, that Sergey and Larry 
while they were working, this is true for a program that's called uh, the Digital Libraries Initiative that was, uh, as many programs are publicly funded. But Google was not directly a contribution to this, to, to this program. It was something that maybe was inspired by this. But this is more akin to saying, okay, uh, you're a postdoc, you're in a university, you're publicly funded, and you come up with this invention. Was the state being entrepreneurial, or was it just like the state just is more of a, it has more of a supporting role that's saying, okay, we're going to like fund all the all, uh, all of the academics, and then that kind of like sits the ground for for you to have your ideas. And who is really taking the risk and having the ideas ultimately? Uh, it's it's actually people that are in the uh, on the ground, not not like the state. Even in the case of ARPANET, let's say so ARPANET, again, ARPANET was coordinated by, by DARPA and then ARPANET led to the modern internet, but saying that, that the internet is, is a state creation completely devalues the role of internet service providers, all the work that went into building the, 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 trans, uh, the submarine cables that actually transmit most of the, of, of the traffic, all the internet protocols that, that were developed uh, in various places. And many of these things, it wasn't like a, again, like, like a, like a mission-oriented program to design and create something. It was more like people happen to to get ideas in their places. So uh, if you look at, at, the, at, the, at the WWW the protocol, the World Wide Web uh, at CERN, well, CERN is a, is a large hadron, it's, it's a particular collider uh, establishment. So the, they, he came up with this idea while he was working at that. It was not the intention of the funding of a place to, to come up with this idea. And likewise goes, goes for touchscreens. So touchscreens also were also born in academia. And um, so actually in a, Maybe I forget the news in a more than international lab, but they were researching something completely different. And to make that job easier, they invented uh, those, uh, those those touch screens. So I guess that the the um, the, the ultimate the way we should see everything together is that we shouldn't go as far as as, as Matsukato says, where, where Apple is, is is actually or or Google are like milking the state and actually exploiting the risks that the state are taking. Is more of a the way innovation is structured is that. States think there's a public goods problem. You get extra funding. It gets distributed. Distributed. No one captures the state. It's not meant to be captured. As in, when when companies use public publicly funded research, it's not like there is a contract that says if you use this, you have to pay this much money. You could perhaps do so. So Matsukato suggests doing something like that. But if you want to do that, you you cannot retroactively say, okay, Apple, you have benefited from this research. Now you have to pay. It's like, but we didn't sign anything. The research was explicitly made publicly available. So I think that, that, that one thing Matsukato is saying is probably uh, going too far. Also in renewable energy, this one is quite funny. So, so Maria Matsukato, in this is this chapter, briefly speaking, she says that the state has been behind most of the, of the push behind ren renewable energies. And at some point she cites one report from Bloomberg that says that seems to show that the state is, is by far the biggest funder here. But actually, she basically mixed things like different kinds of capital that, that people use. Like it's very different to have like debt financing with like risky, um, like more like VC stuff. And it's like, um, and, and she was even on, on Twitter publicly, she was called out by the author of the report. <laughs> she was like, like, look, look, Mariana, you are not reading this properly. And she was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> but that's just not a serious way of, of, uh, of, of doing the uh, research. And finally, so Mariana Machuquet also, also when she's, assessing the relative contributions of state and the private sector, she tends to contrast two models. One will be more a rich system of, or ecosystem of innovation where you have like companies at state, uh, various consortia, things like DARPA, versus an, an almost autistic model of the private sector where you, you just have companies and, and, and that's it. But those are not really the alternatives. Like you also have like, I was mentioning earlier, this like focused research organizations, they can be public. You, you can make them uh, in a DARPA way. They can also be private. Like there is no, reason they need to be 
to the public. As in, there is nothing, there is no special sauce that the public sector is putting in there. The special sauce is that they happen to have loads of money. And also because they fund a lot of uh, academia, it's natural that a lot of that basic research is uh, effectively publicly funded. Although it, that's also a good question. Like in the US, it's like half of the funding is publicly funded, half of basic research, half of it is publicly funded, half of it is privately funded and will vary a lot by, by sectors. Yeah, so that's the idea. So I guess the 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 model I, I would see the I would advocate for the state is more of a more of a supporting role. I think it should leave it to to private uh, to private initiative and the markets to actually figure out uh, what's the best use for resources like this. The state can play some maybe some coordination role, and I would call this more the the uh, the supporting state rather than the, the entrepreneurial model that that Mariana Matsukato would seem to be uh, advocating here. So uh, again, maybe it ultimately comes down to a to a status question. Should the status of the state in innovation be raised or lower? As in, have we been uh, undervaluing the role of the state? I maybe. I mean, I think that, that the book is good. If, if one thing, I think uh, maybe uh, Matt Ridley. I think maybe he's the complete opposite. He thinks everything is like the state doesn't really do much. I think maybe if you put if you put both things both both books together, maybe you get a, a nice a nice summary. And just to finish off with one thing, so. Maybe one thing Mariana Chukata doesn't really pay much attention to is uh, like the, the political economy of all all this stuff. If you if you give this if you give the state more power in deciding uh, what should be funded, uh, even things like taking equity in in, in companies, becoming more of an investor, uh, and we, we actually in practice would move more towards more of a planned economy style thing, uh, which some sector of people may like. Um, but in, in that case, you end up with this, this situation where, which you may not have intended, where the state ends up actually controlling the economy directly through ownership of these innovative corporations. And ultimately, ownership uh, is, is power. Like if, if, if you own the media and you own these corporations, you can use them. In theory, you could just say, oh, I want to use them just for the public good. Uh, everything will be nice. But that doesn't always happen. Uh, and, and if you always have, if you have this one entity doing doing all of that, then you have you effectively have would have no uh, no escape. Totally. So, sort of in, in closing here, I, I want you to talk about. We've talked about a number of different topics, and it's it's amazing that you have such knowledge about all of them. I'm I'm curious for the uh, the Jose uh, production function. Why don't you talk about what it is that you think makes you sort of uniquely able to understand complex topics fairly quickly and be able to to you know create compelling uh, you know reports on them. Yeah, I think that the, if, if we go back to the original production function in, in economics, right, like you're writing things down in productivity, labor, and capital, or equipment, it doesn't like labor, it's like, uh, it's basically, uh, how do you maximize how much work you put into what you do? And here, I basically do things like, uh, I choose the, the flat where I live based on a spreadsheet, just so that I didn't have to commute, I can just walk to work. Well, now it's purely remote. I rarely cook anything, I, everything's takeaway, so it's, it's more time savings. I rarely go out. Uh, and so I, I must be able to basically just focus on doing this one thing and, and throw as much time as I, as I possibly can at that, all, except for my, of course, my day job. But other than that, I mostly focus on doing uh, this uh, this one thing. In terms of like capital, uh, so as a thing, uh, what, what things, what things, what equipment can you buy to help you uh, with uh, with being effective at doing what you do? Um, I think that to me. At least in my case, that's, if you are sitting on a chair reading for a long time, it's it's it's, it's exhausting eventually. Like maybe it, you, you don't you don't feel uh, like you want to keep doing that. Maybe your back hurts or something. So in that in that case, you, uh, what I use switch between the bed and the and a chair. So um, um I bought this this this, uh, this Chromebook so I can actually keep reading and actually take notes on the uh, on um, while I am sitting on the bed, just like looking at a screen and, and flipping uh, with that screen. Um, on the notes question though, uh, so some people are pretty much into um, 
we may call them productivity systems, other, other ways of taking notes or tools to take notes like Rome Research, for example. I don't use much of that. So I use Notion to, to, to compile papers that, I, that I've read just so that I can search them. But I don't take uh, a lot of notes, uh, detailed notes about uh, the little things I'm reading at what mo at, at one specific uh, moment in time. It's more of I just keep reading through things. Initially, it's very superficial. You kind of like only retain very high level things that you, you that you keep seeing these things over and over. So you think all oh, these things must be important in this topic. So you 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 focus more on those, and then and then as you as you continue, then you kind of get a better taste for what is relevant and, and what is and what is not, and then you you begin uh, focusing on those. Um, so I guess that initially when I was looking at, at biology, the, the strategy I followed was, okay, when I, uh, imagine that, that I tell you um, something like, uh, with age, there is NAD depletion and that causes a, a reduction in, in serotonin activity and that uh, impairs DNA repair. Okay, what's NAD? What's serotonin? What's this DNA repair stuff? So so you get into all this, like uh, trying to understand each thing, uh, each, each breaking down things into very small chunks and trying to deeply understand them. And by understanding, again, it's also my, I also have a model of what understanding means. To understand something, it means that that you, you're able to do things like, again, it's more of a nebulous thing, but to be able to predict things. I think when you are reading about research, you see things coming because you have built this model of how things work in the field. You know what things are like the thing you're looking at you know either what creates the, the thing or how it interacts with, with our thing. You know how the data that you're using to, to justify your beliefs was generated uh, and things like that. So I guess that ultimately that goes into the efficiency bucket as in how do, you, how do you make your hours count more? Because if you take one hour of Jose today and one hour of Jose last year, I, I'm given like the same time and the same equipment, I'm more effective right now at uh, doing a, uh, but I do it just because I I've built, be building this structure for noticing what matters uh, and what doesn't. Um, because you, you could like biology, biology is such a like such a kind of fractal thing. You could get lost in, in trying to understand this tiny detail of, of like this protein for years, but you you will be missing the, the bigger picture. So it's, it's the balance between how deep you go, you want to go in your understanding and how broad you want to go so you can actually uh, notice what, what actually is connected to everything else, what matters and um, and so on. And for, for the notes, my belief is that if you really are interested in, in a topic, if you are committed to that for some time, um, you're going to be reading those papers, like loads of those papers over and over, that in effect is acting as a space repetition system. You, you're going to keep seeing the concepts by reading the papers themselves. And then by writing, I think the, the important bit is by writing the blog posts. I think most people will just, most people I sh I'm sure read papers and they, and they form beliefs of them and, and stuff. But the thing that one, by, by writing them down, it's easier to both actually remember them but most importantly sometimes you think you know something but you don't I mean, you have this you believe that you believe something but when you try to explain it to someone else you're like oh actually i actually don't really know how to explain this so it means that you didn't really know even though you felt like you did know and writing really keeps you accountable and finally um something else to try to do um, um, when i put this uh these uh, reports and these blog posts out, out there Ultimately, I, I try, I'm, I'm trying to be accurate. I, I don't want people to be misled by what I write. And so I, I put bounties on, on them. So if anything I write is wrong, I will pay for the mistakes. So that depending on how serious the mistake is, uh, I will pay more or less. If the whole thing is wrong, I think it was like $200. If it's a minor mistake, a little less. Uh, for example, when I published the longevity FAQ, uh, Laura Deming sent me an email uh, with a bunch of corrections. I think she, I think she got like 60 which was to respect, it was my first uh, adventure into, into longevity and, and Laura, of course, has loads more, most, a lot more experience there. And I think that this is, 
Uh, this is something that to me is like going beyond uh, regular scientific standards because sure I, I um, you can do peer review but you can also actually actually claim that you think you're so sure that you are right that you're willing to put the bounty on it. This is something that some people are saying to. So there is there are, there was a decision decision collaboration um, by Daniel Lackins and others where they actually published a paper and put the bounty on the paper to find mistakes in there. And I think this is, eventually this is the same thing as, as prediction markets and, and other things that, but putting money, if you if you really care about truth, if you're not just signaling that you are so smart and you can write complex seeming things, if you really care about truth, then you should you should actually uh, have some skin in the game and put the bounty on, on yourself. And that way you will be paying for correctness. You will be buying truth from others that will, they will come to you to make you more right and less wrong. Totally. I, I think that's a, that's a great place to, to wrap. Jose, for people who want to go deeper, can you um, share your, your, your website and your Twitter? Yes. So on my website is uh, nintil.com. That's uh, N-I-N-T-I-L.com. Um, and my Twitter is at um, Kel. That's A-R-T-I-L-K-A-E-L. Also, my, my Twitter is also linked there and, and, and my website. And you can also just search my name and you will probably come to my blog or my Twitter. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Jose, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. My guest today has been Jose Luis Ricon Fernandez de la Puente. Uh, Jose, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.